My entire aesthetic is swanning into a room covered in pashmina smelling faintly of gin. I just want to be the mad gin-soaked auntie. That's all I want, Francine. I think you're well on your way, my love. Oh, I can't wait till I'm 40. We haven't got to 30 yet. I know, but I feel like 40 is really when I'm going to hit my stride aesthetically. I can see that, yeah. yeah. I think both of us are make really good 40 to 60 year olds. Well, I'm still looking forward to our retirement plan of moving in together, Grace and Frankie style, in a... Like, in a castle with snacks. In a castle with so, snacks. So, you know, readers, hurry well, up with those. Well, you've got till we're like 60, so... Yeah, but people procrastinate. Oh, God, I know, You have to yeah. give them a short deadline or they won't do it, as you know very well, because I keep giving you the edited episodes about three minutes before you need to upload them. <laughs> Which is really difficult for listening to an hour and a half long episode, before, <laughs> especially because I have no concept of time management. Like oh, this, it's me too. <laughs> this morning, I was looking at my schedule and thinking, right, I've got three hours of television to watch. Well, I can squeeze that into two hours. <laughs> You're right, exactly. It's like, I know, I know if I've got a three-hour a three hour episode to edit down to two hours, I know that's going to take at least six hours. Yep. And yet, somehow I'm like yeah no it's fine I can start it at like noon on Sunday and get it to Joe by two yep <laughs> so bad at this we're both so bad at time management that's cool right should we make a podcast yeah let's make a podcast speaking of that <laughs> oh. hello and welcome to the two shall make you fret ineffable edition uh, this is usually a podcast in which we're reading and recapping every book from Terry Pratchett's Discworld series in chronological order however however We've taken a little break from the Discworld to visit Armageddon. And having talked, <laughs> Lovely this time of year. And having talked about the book Good Omens and the first three episodes mm-hmm. of the TV series Good Omens, we are yeah. now here to talk about episode four to six of Good Omens, the TV series. Well, it sounds pretty effable to me, Joanna. I'm Joanna Hagen-Young. And I'm Francine Carroll. And yeah, we're here to talk about episode four to six of Good Omens. We are. Note on spoilers. Uh, Lots of them. They abound. Uh, we're not going to spoil anything from the Discworld, especially nothing from The Shepherd's Crown. Mm-hmm. Uh, but major spoilers for the book and TV series of Good Omens. Yeah. Now we're talking about the last three episodes of the TV yeah. series. Don't listen to this until you've watched it. Yeah. Unless you don't care about spoilers, in which case, fill your boots. I'm yeah. not your boss. I'm not your mum. I, I, I am in... Mm-hmm. <laughs> that would have been a hell of a weekend. Um, <laughs> I am... I did read somewhere that apparently spoilers on the whole don't make people enjoy things less. But I think that's very much a personal thing. Personally, I don't care about spoilers very much. No, I don't really. But I... I have seen people like really get upset if they know that there's a twist coming, even if, even if they don't know what it is. Yeah, th- there's been times where I've been spoiled and it's kind of bugged me. Like uh, when the first of the new Star Wars films came out, uh-huh. like it was inevitable I was going to get spoiled for this because I work in a cinema. Yeah, yeah. So it was like a couple days after it came out and I overheard two people discussing like a, a, ca- a major character dies. Yeah. And, and so then I spent the whole film like, I can't be excited that this character's here because I know they're dying at the end of the film. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, so sometimes it really bugs me, but like, Game of Thrones, I obsessively looked for any leaks and spoilers about the final season in the hope it would get better. It did <laughs> not. I'm still bitter. <laughs> um, so follow up from last week. Yeah. Oh, uh, can I be honest, mate? <laughs> we just went away for five minutes. I haven't done a lot more since then. Uh, a little follow up from the episodes we did on the book. You, okay. uh, as one of your obscure reference finials, talked about uh, Charles Fort. Mm-hmm. There is a line in the script. I don't think it actually made it into the show. Uh, there's a man called Charles Fort who could make it rain fish. Yeah. When Adam's trying to um, like explain all the stuff he's learned from uh, the magazines, yeah. and that made me quite happy. Yes, um, especially because they had to cut the actual reins of fish, which I think is why that line was cut um, because of budget stuff. Like <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> it, it turns out um, I was reading the stuff with Neil Gaiman in the script book about what was cut and why, and he did kind of say, "Yeah, it turns out it's really expensive to film on motorways." So a lot of stuff. <laughs> it's to do with it is, the, yeah. yeah. 
a lot of stuff to do with Reigns of Fish on motorways got cut for some reason. Oh, I feel like they could have done the Guardian's Question Time bit. Yeah. Or maybe that's it. It is on... There is a bit with radio in the background that was Gardner's Question oh, Time. Oh, no, there wasn't. Yeah, yeah, but it's like playing through a car. Yeah. It's kind of used as a really nice transition, actually, as yeah. it goes from someone's radio in a kitchen to, yeah. I think, Dick Turpin. That's true. Obviously, yeah, they wouldn't just cut to black for a bit and do the whole thing as it was in the book. Like, yeah. There is a really, really good moment, and I'm annoyed I forgot to write down which episode it's in, where... Um, you know, the demons speak to Crowley through the radio, but it's yeah. whoever was already talking on the radio. Yes. Uh, and it's Nicholas Parsons doing just a minute, and they got Nicholas Parsons to come and do this voiceover bit. Oh, that was him? Yeah, it was Nicholas oh, Parsons. Oh, good. I think, I think, I think that one was the last episode, wasn't it? Oh, not the last episode, the last, uh, five. Yeah, the like, second right near the episode. apocalypse. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it's when, it's Nicholas Parsons is telling Crowley he's yeah. in trouble. Yeah. Um, and that was really well done, so I liked that. Right, so... We are kind of breaking this down into an episode at a time, so let's talk episode four, Saturday Morning Fun Time. Is that what it was called? Yeah. Um, Saturday Morning Fun Time, was that a kid's TV? That was the, the you know, the bit where Crowley's in the cinema. Yes, oh yeah, that's yeah. Saturday Morning. Also, it hints that this episode takes place on the beginning of Saturday. Ah, yes. So we're now halfway through the book and... Yeah, we're past the halfway yeah. point, we're getting up to it. So the way that... It's almost the same structure as the yeah. book. The first half is 6,000 years. The second half is Saturday and Sunday. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is kind of Saturday morning. Cool. So, Francine, could you tell us what happened previously on Good yeah. Omens? Oh, fuck. I'm not sure I can read my handwriting. I just scribbled this between episodes. <laughs> okay. Stop letting them behind the curtain. Oh, I'm sorry. It's a really, really flimsy curtain today. Yeah. The world begins and two divine beings, casters two divine beings, begin a friendship. Sometime later... The Antichrist is delivered to Earth to start apocalyptic proceedings. Unfortunately for Demon Crowley and Angel Aziraphale, the damned child is misplaced. But nobody realises for a bit. When they do, our occult, uh, ethereal protagonists start their search. Marvellous. I had like 30 seconds, I'm sorry, I know a lot more happened than that. But... It's fine, I'm <laughs> assuming people listening to this have yeah. also watched it. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, so in episode four of Good Omens, uh-huh. Atlantis rises from the depths as Adam dreams be- Adam's dreams begin to manifest. Uh, that's the only clever bit of writing in this I summary. I like it. Very I good. Say. Um, Adam starts telling them about all of his new beliefs from the magazines he's been reading. It's really quite exciting. Yeah. Uh, Aziraphale pops out for a jog with Gabriel <laughs> to keep trying to warn him he's about a this. Witch. Yeah. What? Because he's a witch. Yeah, definitely jogging a witch. for hell. Yeah, Gabriel's a witch. Burn him. He turned me into a newt. I got better. <laughs> no Monty Python references. Sorry, Francine. I can't help it. Um, uh, so he, Aziraphale's still trying to prevent, present the, uh, prevent the apocalypse. <laughs> Gabriel is ignoring him and the angels start getting suspicious of Aziraphale's behaviour. Crowley starts looking for a way off the planet. <laughs> I hear Alpha Centauri is lovely this time for you. Yes, no, I've heard that. Uh, newt... Uh, heads to Tavfield, having received his armour of righteousness. Pollution receives their crown and death gets a message, RIP International Express Man. <laughs> Adam and the them rescue Newt from a car crash and deliver him to Anathema, which he's thrilled about. Mm. Haster goes to meet Warlock at the fields of Megiddo and realises they've got the wrong guy. As Adam starts getting a little bit more evil, Crowley goes to see a movie. After getting yelled at by Haster, he goes to apologise to Aziraphale. We get the holy water bit. Uh. 
Haster and Liger turn up to uh, finally deal with Crowley. He kills Liger with holy water and Haster traps Haster. Screams. Haster screams oh, and gets trapped in an answer machine. Newton and Athema do the horizontal fandango. <laughs> I know, I really love horizontal fan- I couldn't think of another funny euphemism. <laughs> really? Newton. <sighs> Newton and Athema play hide the sausage. Oh no, that's much worse. Do it's the other for one, my yeah. forbidden. Newton and Anathema get to know each other a little better, if you know what I mean. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, say no more, squire. <laughs> ah, yes, sexy, wrist, sexy, sexy wrist gripping. That is my main note from that scene. Aziraphale gets let down by the Metatron, loses his faith, gets discorporated, and his bookshop catches fire. Not a good day. Yeah, no, that's a bad day. Right. Favourite quote slash line reading from this whole episode has got to be when the other kids are doubting... Everything out of the what I wrote down Things on the internet can be made up, but this is magazines. Of course it's real. <laughs> but I really, because obviously this is taking place about 30 years after the book was written. Yeah, that's the fun bit. It, very re- it doesn't have to do a lot to acknowledge the shifts in technology and society, yeah. but it does in a couple of really subtle ways. And one is this. Of course the kids have the internet, which yeah. wasn't really a thing when the book was written. Well, no, it was a thing. It's yeah, not a thing yeah. the kids had easy access to. Mm-hmm. Um. But it deals with it really quickly. He just says, well, yeah, we, we know stuff on the internet's made up, but they've still got this, like, faith in magazines. Yeah. Um, and uh, mentioning that Crowley's vintage answer phone. I really like how they did the answer phone thing, because yeah, I was they wondering They didn't try and they, fuck it with some mobile like, phone. trapped in an yeah. iPhone. Yeah. They use the iPhone in the scene as well, and he's mm-hmm. kind of got both. But, uh, yeah, and it doesn't... Because you see his answer phone used elsewhere yeah. in the series, and it's just like, oh, it's just an answer phone. Yeah. It doesn't bother trying to explain what it is. And yeah. yeah, there's just one line about it. I wonder if people younger than us who just haven't grown up with answer phones or didn't see them on their TV and that would be confused by the click answer phone thing, or whether that's just so everywhere. I on think the it's telly. still enough in yeah. pop culture. I don't think it's fallen out of yeah. fashion. Like, it's still in so many TV series and stuff, yeah. and it's not like young people aren't watching older stuff. No. Like and I watched... suppose even modern answer phone works in much the same way, doesn't it? You can yeah. still have the deleting the answer phone message or you, it goes beep message, yeah. yeah. And also, like, if you think when we grew up in the 90s and 2000s, we were watching a bunch of stuff from the 60s, 70s, 80s. Yeah. So, But then we didn't have the whole of Netflix to choose from. We watched... Netflix is full of the 60s, 70s and 80s. Yeah, I know, I know. But <laughs> I, I, I'm pretty sure kids still know what yeah. answer phones are. Okay. I don't think they've fallen out of cultural lexicon enough yet. Yeah. Generation Z. Tell us what you think about answer phones. Yes, if anyone from Generation Z is listening, please email us and tell us your thoughts <laughs> on answer phones. Wouldn't it be nice phones. to think that young people listen to us, Joanna? <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice? No young person's ever listened to me. I work with Generation, generation Z. They don't listen. They just vine me. No, vine's not a thing anymore, is it? TikTok me. Yes. Vine's our generation's thing, Joanna. Oh, God. I don't know how old I am. <laughs> I am both extremely on the internet and extremely bad at internet things. <laughs> I like TikTok. I'm I downloaded TikTok yesterday, which I feel like is just going to become a huge time suck for me. Yeah, it is. Sorry. Um. Mm. Anyway, yeah. So that was my favourite line yeah. reading, yes, and the way the show good. just acknowledges the slight shift in eras from when it yeah. was written to when the show was made. Yeah. Because uh, I can't think of another time it's going to be brought up. Um, the answer phone scene. Yeah. David Tennant casually jumps onto a desk. Mm. Mm. is he a grasshopper do you know how hard like have you yes yeah vertical jumping is incredibly difficult i i don't know i mean he's got a lot of legs so i guess there's just a lot of spring there yeah do you think he dances i'm just i'm just kind of like what kind of athletics is he into like 
he dances in this episode. It's glorious. I will get well, to yeah, it. Yeah, not like that. <laughs> I mean, the kind of dancing where you know where your feet are. Oh, God, no. I've got no idea. I have no experience <laughs> of that sort of dance. What do you mean, the gavotte? Yes, just like the gavotte. Dun, 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 oh, dun, dun, dun. That's, oh, mate. Just watching Michael Sheen do the gavotte and looking so pleased with himself is one of the most wholesome things I've ever seen. Oh, I love it. It's so perfect. Actually, let, well, I mean, I was going to talk about... Yeah, we'll get to that later when, when we talk about English. <clears throat> uh, so, yeah, so big changes from the book. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a little bit in the script that didn't make it to the show that's just a unspoken scene where sort of war gets off her bike and a bunch of people get into a punch-up trying to return a glove to her. Oh, okay. Um, the, it was really weird coming across that in the script book because, like, they don't do that with the other horsemen and I don't know if it was just written before they decided we're not going to do these little interludes. Yeah. But also I kind of missed it because I really liked the woman playing war. I thought she was very good. Yeah. Uh, Carmen Zerbiger. Okay. I'm not, no, that's the name yeah. of the character. Oh, yeah, no, that's right, yeah. Other big changes from the book. Mm-hmm. We've got the whole scene where we actually see Hasta in Megiddo yeah. with um, Warlock, yeah. who he thinks is the Antichrist, which it feels like it was partly just an excuse to use Nick Offerman again. Yeah. Uh, which I totally get. Like, if you have Nick Offerman, put him in there. Yeah. But there's also the chat with Hasta, uh, Hasta's having with the young demons where they talk about selfies. Like, the fact oh, that yeah, the younger yeah, yeah, demons... Yeah, yeah. Because the whole comedy of Hasta and Liga is that they don't get the real world. Yes. So then having these young demons who are really tech-savvy with yeah. tablets... And then and Hasta just getting angry about it. <laughs> yeah. And um, there's a line about Crowley inventing the selfie, which of course he did. Yeah. Um, the avocado thing, I don't think landed very well in the TV series. I don't think it... La- I, I didn't land well with like the young tech-savvy ones because it always feels like, uh, millennials and avocados. Like, I don't, I don't think that's what it was meant to be. No, but... no. It, I mean, it was just... In the book, it's just a silly... Oh, there's a really big avocado. Yeah. Kind of thing. But in the TV show, it didn't... It really needs to be that than that to yeah. be the joke. It was It was too played up. Yeah. Although the guy playing Hasta's line delivery, because that character isn't really meant to be funny and is bad at mm. humour, somehow mm. made it hilarious. Yeah. No. Because true. he was just very bad at telling a joke. <laughs> I love him. Nick thingy I, we just talked about yeah. it but yeah, yeah i can't remember his name now um also yet yeah, the whole thing when newton anathema figure out that adam is the antichrist feels very early because uh, they figure how, how it out they in, do it? well no they're just they're trying to figure out you know they're there and the apocalypse is kind of starting and the yeah, hurricane yeah. is starting and they come to the conclusion that adam's the antichrist um because uh because newt has been spent specifically to look for oh the hogs back lane thing yeah yeah yeah, yeah. which and it, it was sort of weirdly simplified. I, I didn't dislike it or like it. I just thought it was an interesting shift from the book. I guess they had to show the realisation somewhere and that was a non-crowded scene. Yeah. And if, also, if we had the realisation when everything else was happening. It gives Newton Anathema like just a bit more purpose as well mm. because, you know, where I said in a few scenes they kind of stagnate yeah. and feel unnecessary in the yeah. book here. It, it keeps them a lot more central to the plot. Yeah, yeah. So... Uh, we get the the cruise captain at the beginning of the episode uh-huh. as Atlantis comes out from the depths. Uh, the guy playing him is David Morrissey, and it, it's only a little part, and he's he's perfectly good in it. But I really like that the uh... sorry, my post its are not that actually the sound of post it notes, dear listeners. None of them are purple. We're not getting too feminist right now. In the script, start on Captain Vincent, played if possible by William Shatner. <laughs> I like that Neil clearly Gaiman it was not the... possible <laughs> yeah. but I like that Neil Gaiman just threw some casting request 
bits into the script. Yeah. Uh, we meet the International Express guy's wife, Maud, played by Indra Ove, and I really yeah. like that they gave him just this little humanising backstory. Yeah, that feels quite practically. It was very sweet, mm. and it was a nice scene between the two. The act of considering it's like a two-minute less than scene the actors had a lot of chemistry between them it was yeah they they got in some really talented actors for these bit parts like (laughs) it worked so well um obviously we meet pollution played by lord faber i am not entirely sure if i'm saying name i'm not sure if i'm saying it right uh that's how you say lord yeah uh so is she french filipino oh then i don't Um, know yeah which uh but there's french influences on filipino language yeah the only other people on the internet with my name are filipino so yeah um, so I really like that they made the character of Pollution non-binary and uh-huh. is any, but like, and they could have cast a non-binary actor, right. which I think I said. I'm in the probably going to sound like an ignorant twat here. How many non-binary actors are there? I don't know how many. Like out. Yeah. There's not many out non-binary actors. So I do get like not yeah. doing that, but it's still a bit, I, it's, it's not a bad thing. Yeah. It's just could always be better. I'm it, not gonna... it, it, It's not. It's not something I've seen a lot of people be publicly out about yet. Not as major actors, especially, no. no. And I still think the actor did an amazing job. And I oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It was, re- it was still really well cast, and I thought mm. Pollution was really good. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, oh, the eyes. Mm. Especially as the crown goes on. Mm. Glistening. Oh, every, it, was, it was visually amazing. Yeah. And I really like Lord as an actor, and want to look out for her and more stuff. Yeah, um... Yeah, I didn't look up what else she's been in, but but yeah, she's um, a, she's a rising star, is she? I think so. Yeah, I, rec- I didn't McKinnon recognize before. her at all, but that could have been just because she was in a weird ass costume. Well, that too. Uh, so obviously, we've got Death as well. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Voiced by Brian Cox. Yes, not, not that one. Not that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I Leave mentioned now this. to avoid the rush. <laughs> I think I mentioned this in uh, when we were talking about the book, but I found it so weird because I've recently like watched Succession a whole mm-hmm. bunch, and Brian Cox plays a very different character to Death in that. Yeah, but he's very, very good in it, and I couldn't help but hear a bit of his Succession character in Death, and it was just a bit sort of. I keep expecting him to yell at his son and then make everyone play boar on the floor. <laughs> what? Oh my god, succession's so good. Um, but also I thought the description in the in the stage directions for what death looks like. Mm. Um, the International Express man looks up. Death is there. The trick in design is going to be not having death look either comical or like a puppet. A grinning skull with tiny blue dots like stars in the eyes. <laughs> we don't talk in the book about how he's dressed this first time, and I think this is the one time he should be in classical Grim Reaper robes to make the biker costume later stand out. But I can be talked out of this by a designer or costume person with a brilliant alternative. Wow, I really like that he's... In his notes, he sounds like... It, it sounds like the editorial notes you put on the first draft of an article before you send it to for, for editing. Yeah. It does sound. He did. He does say like this I is not how scripts sense. are normally yeah. put together. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, but this is just because he's got such a strong vision for it. But I found it really interesting that the death we get in this doesn't actually really look anything like that, and does not look anything like Terry Pratchett's death. Ah, see, I thought they'd very deliberately stayed away from that. Well, that's what I like thought... with the weird sinew over his eyes. I thought that was kind of a we are not doing the yeah. Discworld death. It was a lot. It was a bit more horror skull. Yeah. Um, and I thought it really worked. Yeah, I thought it was really good. Um, I was expecting Discworld death. Yeah. And so it was a nice I'm glad kind of they made it. shock. Yeah. Especially because obviously the Christopher Lee had passed away since this was made. And Christopher yeah, yeah, Lee yeah. is the Discworld death. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, his uh, the the voice of Brian Cox is not tombstone slamming into. No, it was a bit more light and conversational as far as death goes. <laughs> yes, but Although, also in- intimidating rather his... than occult. Yes, uh, whereas death is just. Uh, matter of fa- the Discworld death is very matter of fact yeah. existence. This is an angry, vengeful death. This yeah. is like early Discworld death. Yeah, but yeah, I, I thought it was interesting considering that's the stage direction that he doesn't look like mm. he does. He isn't a grinning skull with blue stars in his yeah. eyes. So a choice got made somewhere, and I'm, yeah. I'm really interested in that. Yeah, uh, we get the Mesotron voiced by Derek Jacobi. That made me laugh. Oh, I love Derek Jacobi. But um, who was like? There's a whole whole bunch of Doctor Who references, especially uh-huh. like like. Well, I say a whole bunch. There's a few Doctor Who references and crossovers, and I quite like mm-hmm. Derek Jacobi's obviously played the Master at some point. Uh, so just like yeah. that was another yeah. little Doctor Who link there, as well as David Tennant. Yeah. But also, so I was thinking, obviously, the Mestron's the main character in Dogma, which is my favourite Joe and Silent Bob movie, played yeah. by Alan Rickman. Yes. And a bit of me was thinking like. I wish Alan Rickman hadn't died and they could have got Alan Rickman to be the Metron. But also, I didn't realise, and I, this came up while I was thinking through stuff and thinking about it, Dogma thanks Good Omens in the credits. Oh, really? For its own existence. Oh. Well, well, I say, like, but, Jay and Slayer. For inspiration. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So Kevin Smith thanks Dogma, as an, oh, cites Dogma, Dogma. Oh my God, sorry, I'm going to start that sentence again. Kevin Smith cites Good Omens in the credits to Dogma. Cool. And that's just a nice little... That's, that's a nice one of my, little thing. I didn't know that. That's one of my very favourite films. Um, I haven't watched that in a long time. Oh, it's so good. Mm. I'm kind of scared to rewatch it in case I don't love it. Yeah, so right? Much. I loved it as a teenager. I'm like, oh. Yeah. Mm. Um, there's a whole thing where there's people talking on the radio about this nuclear power station that's lost yeah. all of its <laughs> stuff. And they, Paul K voices the nuclear power station press guy. So Paul Kay played Terry Pratchett in Back and oh, Black, him. the documentary oh, oh. about him. Oh, fuck, I forgot to watch that while it was still on iPlayer. Wait, how long ago did I say it was five days left on it? Uh, more than five days. Yeah, all right. Yeah. I can probably buy it. Yeah, I think you can. Um, yeah, so obviously Terry Pratchett's job uh-huh. was nuclear power station press guy. Yep. And he was writing, like, the first few Discworld books oh, while he was so doing cool. that. I didn't notice that. That's so really they, had, they had Paul Kay doing uh, the voice, the Terry Pratchett voice. Um, huh. really cool little thing which obviously isn't intentional but um, when you have the two uh, Tibetan people tunnelling uh-huh. the woman the Tibetan woman is played by an actor called Lobsang Samerton oh cool and uh, so yeah, yeah people who have read all the Discord books will know why it's quite yeah. cool that there's a Lobsang uh, the Tibetan thing I thought it was nice that instead of just putting them in saffron robes they actually put them in clothes that Tibetan people would wear yeah I would like traditionally um, yeah I, that that scene could have been kind of weird and racist and it wasn't and yeah. I thought that was very good like, yeah no I was fucking selling train tickets and I'm no. dressed like this in a tunnel yeah, yeah. alright tea break over yeah <laughs> keep digging we know we've got to dig yeah. um, and then last of all Neil Gaiman has his cameo in this episode which is uh, you know the scene where Crowley's in the cinema mm. and there's like a drunk guy asleep in the front seats mm. that's Neil Gaiman <laughs> but also the animated bunnies yeah he's doing the he's doing all the noises oh is he yeah huh. um, it was grim it was very grim. So I, again... It was the first, like, bit of... Ugh, yeah. In the whole thing. Like, the first few episodes could be pretty, like, kid-friendly, I guess. It does get darker And then it's the suddenly from... Three. Yeah, from episode four, I would be putting an age limit on it. Mm. I thought it was really sweet, actually. So, again, background reading around it. Because the original thing, if Terry Pratchett had been alive, the idea would have been that him and Neil Gaiman had their cameo in the scene in the sushi restaurant. And they'd just be... Because then they could just eat as much sushi as they liked while oh, that yeah, scene was yeah. being filmed. 
And Neil Gaiman didn't want to do that without Terry. Oh. So there's Terry sort of has his cameo and that his don't want to eat sushi without Terry. <laughs> makes me really sad. Uh, so there's the whole thing with the hat and the scarf yeah. in the bookshop, and also Paul Kay doing a Terry Pratchett impression as little cameos. But then Neil had to be have a cameo somewhere, mm. and they were saying like they were deciding how they were going to fill this cinema for the scene with Crowley yeah. getting spoken to by the animated bunnies, and they went. Oh, it'd be really funny if it's just empty apart from a couple making out and a drunk guy in the seats and apparently the director just looked at him and went, oh, I found your cameo. <laughs> oh, I'm going to... Oh. <laughs> All right, fine. Amanda Palmer couldn't make it for the makeout scene. <laughs> I guess not. I, a bit of me was hoping she'd have a cameo somewhere, yeah. but no, that made me sad. Well, she's busy. Um, yes. Very talented woman, isn't she? Anyway. Mm. Um, so, skipping... Crowley back to your Aziraphale and Crowley check-in. Yeah. How are they doing? Crowley coming, screaming around the corner in his Bentley to apologise to Aziraphale. What's he apologising for? Well, they for their big fight. I know, but he didn't really say anything mean. I know, but I think he's just so desperate to be friends with him again <laughs> know, and he yeah. really wants Aziraphale to come away with him. Yeah. Like, the whole point is, is escaping, that he's doing anything he can. Yeah. It's also the way he calls him Angel... Yeah, like it's, and it's very pet namey again. Yeah. Not really in the script, and I think that's sort of ad libbed in. Yeah, and it's you know as these actors have worked together, the relationship progresses, and you start in character throwing pet names at each other and stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, as happened with stuff I've done. Cool. Um, but I think it's because they're obviously at this point in the book, they've separated and they don't meet up again until the very very end. Mm not physically, and this keeps bringing them back, and this kind of screaming fight on the corner and the way uh, Crowley's getting... Frus- Crowley's looking for somewhere to go and he's at home and he's getting really frustrated with God and saying, why have you got to test them? Oh, that the whole thing was world? very... I thought it was interesting... Um... Sorry, my again, my notes are a mess. <laughs> I thought it was really interesting... Because we were talking, when we talked about the book, about how Crowley is like the anti-Rincewind where he's sure things are going to work mm. out for him. Yeah. And that is, that's never changes in the book. But because this is a TV series, not a book, and yeah. because it's the same way you needed that breakup moment with Aziraphale and Crowley in the TV series to keep the pace where it was. Yeah. You needed you need... Crowley to grow and not just be that the whole time. Yeah. It's, yeah. Um, the you need him to face, a, face an internal <clears throat> challenge. Yeah. And this is his internal challenge, which mm. is... He is at odds with the world. He wants to run away. Mm-hmm. Um, and he is begging God not to test the people to the end of the world. He isn't the Crowley that he isn't the anti rincewing Crowley yet. Yeah. Because whereas in the book you can just state it, here we have to watch him become it. And I, I think I'm not a, sure if he doesn't go away from that. He definitely isn't book Crowley in that he's sure things will work out for him. Yeah. But, I mean, when, when we get to episode five, we can talk about the shift he gets from running yeah, away yeah. to running towards. Yeah. Um, but to see him get that frustration and that frustration with Gordon, come to Aziraphale with it and beg Aziraphale to run away. And Aziraphale's still maintaining this blind faith that if he can just talk to the right higher up, yeah, everything will be okay. Yeah. And then says to Crowley, I forgive you. And he's just so sure it's all going to work out. Yeah. And Crowley says, well, fine, I'm going and I'm not even going to think about you. Yeah. I thought Aziraphale was the right asshole there. It's like, for what? I th- it's to do with this faith yeah. thing. And this episode yeah. does it so well. But it it's... Are we on the Catholic guilt again? Yeah, probably. But the, the, the I forgive you moment, I kind of saw as almost a... Um, 
he's forgiving Crowley for not believing. Be- right. For not sharing his So it's a very faith. goodbye thing to say. Yeah, he's forgiving Crowley for not sharing his faith that if they can just get to the right higher authority, it will be all right. Yeah. Whereas Crowley, he's begging the higher authority. He just can't be heard. Yeah. And it's kind of, that's a bit of a lost cause because they've got to figure it out for themselves. Mm. God, this is such a good show. It is a really good show. Um, Me making pointed sad faces probably isn't coming across very well on the microphone. Francine <laughs> is making very good pointed sad faces. Also, like, just that scene between Aziraphale and Crowley of them kind of yelling at each other outside the bookshop. And, yeah. and again, it's almost like a second breakup. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is really... It's like the confirmed breakup. Yeah. It's like, are you sure you don't want to get back together? Yeah. Um, I can't. When Aziraphale, when not Aziraphale, when Crowley's looking at places to run away to, though, I was talking about Doctor Who references. Mm. Gallifrey comes up as one of them. Oh, does it? Yeah. <laughs> also, uh, it's not in this episode, but when you get a close up on um, Adam's father's car, the number plates TARDIS backwards. Somebody, uh, Crowley's number plate is curtain backwards. Does that mean anything? I have no idea. Yeah. Okay. I, I hadn't looked at that. I hadn't noticed. I'm assuming it probably is something. Yeah. Okay, but let's talk about the dancing. Okay, let's talk about the dancing. How many angels can dance on the head of a pin? One. Badly. From and what? he doesn't even need a partner because it's a gumball. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. The actual piece of music used is uh, Gilbert and Sullivan's <laughs> I Am a Courtier, Grave and Serious, which is oh. like pointed out in the script book. Is that very... Uh, have you, well, you know Gilbert and Sullivan. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, is it more famous than I should? It, should no, I know it already? No, I, I mean, I do. Okay, okay. And I'll accept you having the same level of knowledge as I do. Okay. Um, but yeah, I really loved it. Angels dancing on the head of a pin. Yeah. And then the demons do. Like, oh, fucking just looking so happy. Because, he just looked so pleased with himself. And especially because so much is happening in this episode that it mm. takes time out to be that silly. Yeah. And it it needed it. It needed that moment of yeah. levity because obviously it gets a lot darker after that. Yeah. But to have that moment also... Um, I'm going to link to this in the show notes. There is a extended video of... Uh, David Tennant and the guys playing Hester and Liger in green screen with a giant, giant pin figuring out a bunch of different things to do with it and it's so good <laughs> that sounds good that Neil Gaiman shared on Instagram and I scrolled back through a year of Tumblr posts to find I've morning. got to have a look at Neil Gaiman's Tumblr yeah um, there, there was there is so Maybe much I should that. finally get into Tumblr 15 years too late oh god don't bother say oh. that oh no I'm just really bad at Tumblr oh. <laughs> um so yeah, so I will link to that in the show notes. Go okay. and watch it whenever you feel sad. Okay. And just David Tennant in the 70s moustache dancing with a giant pin. <laughs> but also I like that, um, so yeah, you have Michael Sheen doing his happy gavotte. Yeah. And then the music is just a discoed up version of the G- Gilbert and Sullivan for the angel, the demon. Oh, is it? <laughs> oh yeah, which I didn't realise right away. That's great. I love that. Um, speaking of Hester and Liger and... Mm. and um, you were talking about how his screaming is really good. Hester's. Oh. The way, the, the camera work and the way it's used in that shot. Where it looks like it's Liger screaming and then it yeah. pans out and it's Hester. And it's Hester yeah, yeah, screaming yeah. because Liger's obviously... I re-round that to watch again. Yeah. yeah. God, that's such a clever way of filming mm. it though. I, do you know what? Think, I don't think I've ever watched something where I did, made such liberal use of the skip back 10 seconds thing. Yeah. Because like, so that was good. Clip. <laughs> Easter eggs and little moments yeah. and clever bits. Um, and yeah, I was talking about earlier, like Douglas McKinnon, the way he 
does really good horror directing mm. in a lot of this stuff. Um, everything about watching Adam get more and more evil is yeah. so perfectly horror film. The way the storm starts and he starts floating and the score is horror film scary, not yeah. funny scary. Yeah. And the way you watch his friends get more and more terrified of him. Um, yeah. I didn't like it, but that's because it was done well and I don't like... Yeah, you really don't like horror. Yeah. I'm not... Yeah, it didn't scare me, but I, it, it makes me uncomfortable watching that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I... I like horror. I, I don't watch a lot of horror, but I also really appreciate it technically as a genre. God, mm. that's the wankiest sentence I've ever said. No, it isn't. No, it's not even slightly <laughs> the wankiest. <laughs> Thanks, Francine. I have, I've got audio evidence now. Oh, God, you've got so much on me now. <laughs> so, yeah, so I thought that was really impressive. It was. Um, Newton Anathema. Yeah. Yeah, they... they, they, they uh, it's... um. They do the no pants dance. Yeah, it's um, the no pants dance. The new, um, well, that's weird. Uh, just yesterday, we watched an advert on Channel Four, I guess, that had um, the new Cadbury's advert. Yeah, and it said everyone's got a glass and a half. Eh. like the the the, the voiceover kind of did a Shadwell Why? accent maneuver. Why? Glass and a half. Why? I don't know. I don't like that. No, me neither. Yeah. It was weird. Um, See, the the actual thing I wrote down when I was taking notes uh-huh. is, oh yes, sexy, sexy wrist, wrist gripping. Mm-hmm. Because the, there is, like, during the sex scene, you just see the hands come up and yeah. grab part of the overturned bed. And the way they grab it, there is no way they are doing anything sexy under no, there no, where no. someone isn't elbowing someone else in the eye. I quite liked it as a comedy sex scene that wasn't explicit. I thought that was quite... It was very PG and it wasn't... But there's n- there was not chemistry between them, and Anathema seemed so resigned. And I said, I don't dislike. But that was always going to be the way, wasn't it? No, that's I know. the point. Yeah. However, I did again. No game is Tumblr. Find the picture of the the prophecy, the note yeah. card, with annotations from Anathema's family. Okay. Uh, so the actual, and again, I'll I'll tweet a picture of this. Anathema of I bloodline. As is, as the great storm rages, the line of my murderer will hold ye tight beneath the bed. Once and once only he will take ye, and ye in his turn will take his long-preserved virginity from his ever-untouched tu- man store. Yet the fine thrust of his great cockalorum shall bring thee to an ecstasy thou hast never yet felt. He is I mighty, although he looks like someone has dragged him through a, backwards through a great hedge. So basically what we've learned from this is that Newt has a big dick. Cockalorum. But some, the, the annotations, there's some little hearts drawn on it. Utter pornography, what was Agnes thinking? That's the Victorian. Uh, sex or position, male organ. Anathema, my descendant, I trust he will be a finer feature and mighty of Cockalorum. You go, boy, may fortune be with you. <laughs> uh, and like that's on screen for like a second, but yeah, then yeah, yeah. anyway, and that just makes me really happy. <laughs> like it was worth Newton Anathema's total lack of chemistry and still somehow doing what they did yeah no, running was... out of innu- why am i so bad at innuendo today i don't know um there are so many innuendos for sex there are so so many let's find a better one hold on oh, for because i well i'm gonna i'm gonna uh, show you something on the phone in a second anyway so i'll just bring it out while we're um uh, man walks into a bar asks for a double entendre so the barman gives him one <laughs> in place of google hall music have my terrible excellent uh 400 euphemisms for sexual intercourse. 
Oh, please start with the good ones. A bit of crumpet. Oh, actually, yes. There is that the was benefit. the first one on the doubt. The benefit to being English is that if you say anything sufficiently poshly, it sounds like a euphemism yeah. for sex or being drunk. A bit of how's your father? Uh-huh. Yeah. Do we know these? A bit of the old in out, in out. Uh-huh. Gonna scroll down a bit here because some of these are gross. Driving Miss Daisy, I like. Uh, doodle bopping. Storming the trenches? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I haven't got to ask yet. Knocking boots. <laughs> Levitating the vending machine. <laughs> you. No, not you. Sorry, I'm looking. I'm reading some of these. Riding, riding the baloney pony. Oh, you! <laughs> Fighting in the bandstand. Seeing a man about a dog. In England, that means something else. Yeah, if I've got to go see a man about a dog, that <laughs> sounds like you're going to do something dodgy involving a white van. Right. Yeah, okay. We took a little bit of how's your father. A little bit of how's your father. Fighting right. in the bandstand also very good. Yeah. Yeah. No, all the rest of these are gross. I've just descended into filth. <laughs> Sorry, filth. Yeah. What are we talking about? <laughs> Sexy, sexy wrist gripping. Mm. Mm. Okay. Um, the last thing I wanted to talk about for this episode is something I've been touching on, but just this final scene with Aziraphale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I was talking about his blind faith that he just needs to get to the highest authority. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the angels are suspicious of him. Everyone wants this apocalypse to happen and he's ignoring that. Yeah. And he calls up the Metatron... And he's sure he can get it sorted. He's so full of faith. He is sure if he can just talk to God, Mm. it can stop the end of the world and it will be fine. And he's talked to the Metatron and the Metatron says, the point is not to avoid the war, it's to win it. And you can pinpoint the exact moment. It's at 51 minutes and 31 seconds. I I noticed this. (laughs) Michael Sheen does this thing with his face where you see Aziraphale lose all of that faith that has kept him Ooh. going. Let me make his, a note of that timestamp and I'll have a look. Through his two breakups with his best friend that he has just had, through the last 6,000 years, you see him lose that in a single second with one sentence from the Metatron. Mm. And like as someone who's gone through a whole faith and then loss of it thing, it's stunningly good. Mm. Like nothing is as good as Michael Sheen's, not good, but incredibly incredible to watch as yeah. Michael Sheen's face in that moment. Wow. And he's fine and you know, when you think about the fact that Crowley fell because he was asking questions, not because he yeah. lost faith. Yeah. That's quite it's a bit uh disworld reference here. Quite hard to lose faith when God is the one kicking you out. Yeah. <laughs> and in this case Aziraphale, yeah, has finally asked enough questions yeah. that he has had his own fall. Yeah. Huh. And that's, you can see him, you can see his heart break. It's such good acting, though. And then, before he can really process that or deal with it, Shadwell turns up, he ends up falling into the circle, Mm. and he discorporates. Yeah. And, ah, the way he says, fuck. Fuck. Yeah. I know we try and not swear too much. No. Do we? we? Well, we've done all right this episode, actually. Actually, yeah. The way he just goes, oh, fuck. And I think it's also, because I don't hear a good bit of swearing in telly very much. No. It ten- but, um, like, actually, there was a good article I was reading. We were talking about Bojack Horseman earlier. There's, like, one fuck per season. Oh, right. And it's, I didn't notice it until I read that, but it is always very carefully placed. Yeah. Uh, there's a moment in season four, you know, where, like, Todd finally rejects Bojack. And yeah. he says, it's you, man. Fuck. It's you. Yeah. And then walks out. 
and it's yeah so i love a judiciously placed fuck maybe we should start being more judicious without fucks yeah fuck that <laughs> um well now we can't use it again <laughs> no i'm sorry francine but yeah to I, it, again it also it's quite funny that he swears there and you hear the angel swear yeah, yeah. And it needed, again, that little bit of levity, yeah. having just watched, like, in my opinion, one of the most tragic scenes of the whole series. And then, isn't it pretty soon after that Crowley arrives, or is this the next episode? Next, so that's oh, okay, the, okay. that is yeah. the end of episode four. Okay, um, cool. In that case, I have a, a, a thing, to, I have a proposition, mm-hmm. um, a proposal, if you will, for the Kraken to be the next surprised Pikachu. are you saying well i did like i watched 12 hours of television to write these episode plans <laughs> you right? just found kraken memes did you make these yeah oh uh, sorry this is like crap visual this is visual content for our podcast but well, i'll put um, it say so it's it's um we'll tweet these the, the, when the crack well i saw him i saw the kraken come up in the credits and i was like he just looks like startled and horrified he doesn't look like the a cra- terrifying monster bent on vengeance this is at the beginning of episode five isn't mm. it all right if we, um oh then we can see them. <laughs> Again, we will tweet all of these <laughs> so yeah uh, my my proposal is so the, kraken, um, the kraken becomes the new surprise pikachu thank you for listening to my ted talk thank you right mm. so episode five the doomsday option Yes. Yes. As you've mentioned with your uh, TED talk, the Kraken, we see we see a lot of manifesting in this episode. Yeah. Adam is manifesting. He is not done manifesting. Ah. Ah. Discord reference. Hey. Well, I mean, we are we are still a Discord podcast, Francine. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed. Ostensibly, it's, it's been a while. <laughs> God, it has been, hasn't it? Anyway, sorry. So, episode five, the Doomsday Option. Mm-hmm. In this episode, mm. Crowley. Comes to find Aziraphale, having at the end of the last episode received a phone call from him, only to find the bookshop burning. He thinks Aziraphale is dead. Because <laughs> he is. Well, he's discorporated. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's what he thinks. He finds a, the nice and accurate prophecies of Agnes Nutter. Adam has gone full Antichrist, complete mm. with glowing red eyes, krakens rising from the deep and killing a whaling ship. Two yeah. birds with one stone a bit there. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, a miserable Crowley drives off to get drunk as as, as the inconveniently discorporated Aziraphale arrives in heaven. Yeah. Uh, tr- they try and rope him into leading a platoon. Mm. Uh, but he realises he can actually pop back to Earth if he can possess someone. Yeah. Shadwell, in shock at the power of his exercising finger, hey. takes a nap at Madame Tracy's. Postcoital Newton and Anathema decide what they need to do next. Okay. Jack Whitehall is actually quite handsome. In the post-coital scene. All right, yeah, fine. He's all right when he's It was weird, like, because, I'm not sure why, I, I think he's not gurning. Yeah. In most of his shows, he's always pulling a face. He's and even in this of... one, he's always looking confused, which is fair enough for what's happening. Yeah, like, I think... But just one... with a neutral face on, he's quite good looking. <laughs> with a little hint of innocence to it. Like, yeah. there's one moment in Fresh Meat where I briefly find his character attractive because of a little sad moment he has with... Uh... Oh, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> um, sorry, I'm still... So, so yeah, so post-Coisal Newton and Athema have their chat about what to do next and how to track down the Antichrist and prevent the apocalypse. Hmm. Uh, Aziraphale pops in on drunk Crowley 
and tells him to head for Tadfield while he goes off to hunt a body. Yeah. The four horse people get together at a motor- motorside cafe. Hmm. Aziraphale interrupts one of Madame Tracy's seances uh, to ask her if she can bo- he can borrow her body and get himself to Tadfield. Yeah. The M25 is rather fucked. <laughs> Hasta uh, reforms out of the answer phone as a big pile of maggots. Ugh. Turns up in Crowley's burning car but can't quite cope with it and runs away. And everyone is off to Tadfield Air Base. Hooray. With R.P. Tyler. What a fun day. R.P. Tyler giving some lovely directions to the four horse people of the apocalypse. Your car is on fire. <laughs> so good. <laughs> um, so yeah, so characters and casting and cameos in this bit. There's some really Ooh. good cameos in this episode. Characters, casting, cameos. Oh my. That's so good. Um, the quartermaster uh-huh. who is trying to have a go at Aziraphale and saying, like, what are you doing? You were supposed to have a body. You're supposed to be leading a platoon. Mm. Is Jonathan Triss, who is Anderson in Sherlock. And I always get a bit excited when I see him pop Who's up Anderson? in things. Did you watch, you watch Sherlock, didn't I you? I did, yeah. You know the guy who is, like, obsessed with the fact that Sherlock must be evil. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And then becomes, like, full... <laughs> uh, he does play very unlikable characters. He plays unlikable characters, but he does it very well. Yeah, um, I'm always excited when I see him turn up in something because he's and the way they that fine, fine facial hair. Oh yeah, the way they style him, mm, it's the, the way it's they topiaried. The way they make all of the angels look a bit fucking human. weird. Yeah. yeah, human but not quite. Yeah, like I can imagine this is what someone writing something set in the future in the nineties yeah. would. Yeah, this is human inspired fashion. Yes. <laughs> um, in the seance bit, Jade mm. Adams has a cameo as Julia Petley. Um, I love Jade Adams, if you haven't seen her stuff. She's hosting a really weird cooking show where she's dressed as Glinda the Good Witch and there's like a magical what? forest made of food what? at the moment that I can't remember the name of, what? but I'll link to it in the show notes. She's also... <laughs> amazing. Um, yeah, she co-hosts... She, she's, she's the goth. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Julia Petley mm-hmm. uh, with the bob. Mm-hmm. She uh, she co-hosts a live show called A Musical where comedians come and perform songs from their favourite musicals. Deborah, uh, Deborah Francis-White's been on it. She did uh, Mine Air as Theresa May. There's also like an A Musical podcast where people just come on and talk about their favourite musicals. I'm particularly excited about A Musical because they're doing a live version of the Buffy musical with like Nish Kumar and Rose Matafeo and I've got tickets for it. One day on this podcast we'll go 20 minutes without you mentioning Buffy the Vampire okay, Slayer. But it's relevant. I'm literally... Barely. Oh, <laughs> she's also a really good stand-up comic as well. She's a really talented singer but she's okay. also a very good stand-up comic. She's got a special on Amazon Prime at the moment called Serious Black Jumper. It's very funny. Okay. Uh, um, sorry, I just hit the table so yeah, I Hilarious. like her as a cameo because she's not massively well-known, uh, but it's still very cool to see her in this. What's her name? Uh, Jade, Jade Adams. Adams I'll link, I'll link to... Yeah. I'll link to this, her stuff in the show notes, but I recommend like following her on Instagram and things because she's just very entertaining. Okay, cool. We'll do. Um, there's a little Where's Johnny. her TV show that has the cooking? Oh, I think you know it's where busy. It fucking I'm not sure. Do you know what? I'm just going to get a fucking TV license again now I've employed. Okay. Yeah, get a TV license from soon. Um, Johnny Vegas has a little cameo as well, doing the voice of Ron Olmerod. Which uh, oh, was that Johnny Vegas? That was Johnny Vegas. <laughs> I thought he sounded familiar. I've never been particularly fussed or not about Johnny Vegas, but it was really, it was a very good choice for that. The stuff he used to do 10, 15 years ago, I just found irritating just because it's not my style of comedy. Yeah. But when I've seen him since, um, it's always been on things like panel shows and that. And I like him. Yeah, I like him. I like he's how, I, like he's still stuff. playing a character a bit. Yeah. Because all comedians do when they're on these things but I like the toned down version of it I find that very funny yeah um, so yeah he was very good in this yeah it was it was perfect casting yeah. 
We've already Although talked. the weird, the shouty bit, I thought was a bit much. Like the shut up. Yeah. I think it might have been a bit more effective if it was just a shut up. And that was it. Yeah. But then they had to make it obviously magical seance Yes, they had to yeah. kind of do something with that. Yeah. I did like the the updated, modernised version of Beryl Ormerod's run-on sentence being about a wedding in which she was served Korean food and I held up the kimchi and I said, what am I supposed to do with this? And she didn't even have the sense to be ashamed. <laughs> it also made me really want kimchi. I've still never eaten kimchi. What? Uh, I suppose I put you off from that time I had it on crumpets with cheese, didn't I? While I was hungover, yes, yes you did. I mean, I was hungover as well, I wasn't after that. <laughs> kimchi and mozzarella crumpets, good hangover cure. <laughs> ah, is this what the... Steve's always serving Worcester. Yes, that's the one. <laughs> Bit of crumpet. <laughs> Bit of crumpet. Um, I know I already talked about R.P. Tyler mm. slash Bill Patterson, mm. but him directing the Four Horse People and then Crowley. That was very funny. And the and the rather than him composing a letter in his head, that just giving Bill Patterson an excuse to scream, "Your car is on fire!" <laughs> <laughs> I just as he left. As he left. It was perfect. Yeah, that was very good. The other amazing bit of acting in this episode is obviously Miranda Richardson being brilliant. Yeah. My One of my few notes for this episode is Miranda Richardson has such a good face. She has such a good face. It's the, incredibly expressive in a very... The fact, Well, she's playing two characters yeah. and even without the voice stuff, she is physically yeah. very distinctly two different yeah. characters. And again, she's not gurning. No, no gurning. Just it's subtle, but it's really well done, and that's what I'm saying the same thing for every actor in this. But they're just really subtle, well done facial performances. Yeah, I think apart from David Tennant, who's really well done over the top body humor. Yeah, (laughs) but that's because if you have that that amount of limb, like that's what you have to do with it. But and then there are points, obviously, where he is having to look just quietly distraught, and he does that too. But we know he can do that because we've watched Doctor Who, so. Oh, I mean, don't start crying. <laughs> Sorry, I just remembered that that gift. Yeah, yeah, don't. No, in the rain. No. Okay. Oh, David Tennant's oh, yeah. in the rain. <laughs> or the bit where his face is up against the wall, and then Billy Piper's face is up against the wall, and they're both crying. Oh my god, Jerry, stop! Oh no, I really. No, we're gonna cry later anyway. Just stop. Okay, fine. So that's all I had about characters and casting. Character like yeah. all the characters have kind of been introduced by now. Yeah. Um. There were two really good line readings I'd noted down for this episode. I want to try you do... See you try and do this one. <laughs> try you do this one, Joe. I'm going to fuck the new mics. <laughs> Somebody killed my best friend. Bastards! Ow! You Sorry. could have leant back instead of forward. <laughs> I know, but I was doing sad crying on the floor. Well, backwards, though. <laughs> Bastards! There we go. <laughs> Bastards! We were just talking about the fact that there's some really subtle (laughs) acting. (laughs) Sorry, puppy. (laughs) Just as we were talking about how there was some really good subtle acting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. David Tennant distraught on the floor of a crying bookshop, screaming. (laughs) On the floor of a crying bookshop. (laughs) Right. Sorry. Let me try that again. David Tennant distraught on the floor of a burning bookshop, (laughs) crying. Somebody killed my best friend. <laughs> Bastards. But is the way he says best friend? Because yeah. he, he doesn't just mean best friend. There. He means only friend. friend. He, that is... He... Oh. I just want to give him a hug. And it is. It's like, it's just this incredibly poignant... It's that utter moment of thing. defeat yeah, for because him all, it's, almost. It's, it is. It's just this... These are 
literally the only two of the kind yeah, that they've there is had no one else to talk like to them. for 6,000 years. It's like... It's like when you see two circus elephants who were kind of separated 30 years ago and then they reunite and they're like, oh, we were once best friends in horrible circumstances, except the elephants are David Tennant and Michael Sheen. Sorry, that went on a tangent. (laughs) (laughs) I was watching a video about elephants last night. When are you not watching a video about elephants, Francine? Right now. Oh yeah, good point. (laughs) We're making a podcast. (laughs) Oh yeah, right. So Um, there's one other bit i really like which is when adam is going full antichrist and he's floating he's gone full antichrist (laughs) don't you hate it when you just like go full antichrist um and he's floating and like it's what i was saying about this whole really good horror film vibe to those adam bits and he's screaming at his friends and he's taken away their mouths and Mm. he doesn't want them to argue with him i mean i'm I'm all for children not having mouths (laughs) They're very loud a lot of the time. It's such good acting, but it's it's the way they keep his boy's own brigadeness about him. Yeah. And he's he's saying this and this and this and yeah. this is this is the best day of all. Yeah. And this, this is the best day. Yeah. yeah. But it's the of all of yeah. it. Yeah. The, yeah, that is very enlightening. It's so from a kid's book and not something a kid would actually say, and he's so but that's him, isn't it? That's the yeah. point. Yeah. And he's so desperate to manifest this idea of the best day. And when he's gone full evil, it's just yeah. because he wants the best day with him and his friends and he's losing his shit. Yeah. That kid is so good in this, especially in this episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because this is that that whole moment. When Dog runs away and he says, I give me my dog back, I full on cried. Yeah. No. I it's... sat there crying at the telly because of all the horrible, poignant, sad, scary moments in this film... That little boy crying, give me my dog back, in an yeah. anti-Christ voice with glowing red eyes, made me full on cry. There was, um, there's a bit right at the beginning of the episode, like pre-credits before that, where Adam is floating up and he's shouting at his friends. Yeah. And the camera does this amazing thing where it moves like something kind of crawling really quickly along the ground and mm. pans up. And like, as far as like horror style filming goes, it's almost like a point of view from some horrible creature. Yeah. And it's very very well done because then it becomes really still when it starts focusing on adam and sort of slowly pans around him screaming at his friends yeah uh i thought that was a really clever bit of filming that i really liked um you don't think that was maybe the dog it could have been the dog's because he ends up cowering next to the friends I didn't think it i didn't think of it as the dog's point of view i can't remember it it. i can't remember it so if, if it if if it wasn't clear then it probably wasn't it wasn't obviously yeah. but yeah the moment where he wants his dog back yeah and he starts and then he starts floating after them and he's kind of the moment where he becomes human again mm. and i think it was quite clever that because we talked about that when we were talking about the book like yeah. that amazing piece of writing of that stop. that scream of pure human anguish and they couldn't really do that with as much weight without narration in the book and i think the fact in the show i think the fact that instead of narrating it you show everything that built up to making Adam who he was at that point. So you and see the, him from baby and you get this kind cards? of... cards? Was that the cards at the yeah, same time? The cards yeah, the in there yeah. and there's that little montage thing. Yeah. I think that's such a good way of representing that really real humanity to him. Yeah, and there was very... Now, I don't know very much about scores and music and I don't know the right language for this, but there was very muddled, conflicting music building up through that whole montage. Well, there was What's a... What's the word for that? Like a... Discordant. Discordant, thank yeah. you, yeah. Um, there was a good interview with 
David Arnold, who did the whole score, who mm-hmm. I've t- mentioned a couple of times, like, God, ridiculously talented. Clearly. Um, every time trying to keep the heaven and hell and everything he used, so if he used a particularly yeah. heavenly sounding instrument, he'd try and have something hellish in the background. When he uses yeah. heavenly choir sounds, there are discordant strings in the background. And oh. that's so strong in that bit with Adam, where he floats after them and he wants his dog back and he turns human and... Oh my god, it's so good. And like I said, that kid is such a good actor yeah. because there's so much in that. Yeah. Um How old is he? The actor. I don't know, like thirteen, fourteen. Yeah, he's still, I didn't he, look he, it up. yeah, he's a kid kid, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, he's definitely yeah. still a kid. Yeah. I just thought it was so beautifully done. Yeah. No, it was it was uh, mm. terrifying and I, again it was one of those things I found genuinely uncomfortable to watch and would probably skip over that bit if I watched again. Because although it's very well done, that's the kind of thing that makes me yeah. not watch that kind of movie. Even though I, I fully appreciate, as, as you do, like the, some of the technical brilliance of horror films. I mean, for a while I edited, I worked, I, I did some work for a website editing uh, horror movie reviews. Yeah. And like, I found that all really interesting and I liked reading the interviews with the directors and yeah. stuff. But I, I, I find it very uncomfortable to watch. I find it like objective i don't watch a lot of horror films yeah. because i react to them too viscerally yeah yeah so it, it, I, it is a physical um, yeah. discomfort and i don't like that but i do at the same time kind of enjoy watching them just because i'm fascinated by the technicality of it yeah um in a way that i think is is more interesting than with say a romantic film or a yeah. comedy comedy i'm really fascinated by the writing yeah but horror so much of what gives you that visceral reaction is how it's how it's filmed and how it's put together and yeah. how it's edited. That I find it quite fascinating from a technical standpoint, even as I'm not that into watching horror films. Yeah, that's so, why I, I like it when it crops up in something like this, where it brings yeah. horror elements into something non-horror. To tie it in with the score again, I remember uh, must have been a kid still for for the first time realizing how big a role music plays in all these things. Um, I remember what it was now. I was, for some stupid teenage reason, at home alone as a teenager watching, like, the top ten horror moments from films or whatever at night. Right. And I was terrifying myself, obviously. But I really wanted to see what the last one was. And I muted it. Yeah. And I played some random music on. And I was like, oh, now it's fine. Yeah. Now I'm not scared at all. It's it amazing is... <laughs> what it does. Like, the, the, the score writers for movies are possibly one of those roles where it's like you a lot of the time you just don't notice it if it's done well yeah. unless it's done so unless it's so core to it as it was in this program yeah. like when it twanged over to uh tadfield and suddenly it was beautiful tadfield theme music it was it was so cleverly done in mm. this it is like i know i mentioned game of thrones a couple of times but one of the things that i think it doesn't get enough credit for is how good the score is there mm. Because uh, Miguel Sapochnik, the composer for it, um, is so talented and created some really beautiful pieces. But that one, it uses all these different thematic phrases and kind of brings them together. Yeah. And it uses elements of like this phrase is so associated with this character that when it slowly gets built in, like yeah. they do it very well with the Red Wedding is one of the big ones. It's like uh, Pavlovian, isn't it? Yeah. And it's like, we have trained the audience to react this way to this music. And therefore, they will feel this when we do this. Anyway, yeah. uh, speaking of music, favourite use of a Queen song in this episode has got to be Somebody to Love as Crowley comes bursting out of the bookshop. That was a little heavy-handed. <laughs> no, it was perfect. I mean, yeah, no, it was stupidly heavy-handed. But where in the second episode, the heavy-handedness between Aziraphale and Crowley felt yeah, yeah, yeah. 
like it's episode five someone just killed his best friend he's burned <laughs> and yeah find me somebody to love because literally there's nobody left on this fucking oh. planet oh. <sighs> okay let's talk about something happier or at least funnier yeah okay. which is um i've been paying attention in the script to obviously scenes that got written but didn't make it into the show oh yeah what did you i was so gutted that this wasn't in the show because it was even cast but it was a budget it was what i was talking about earlier about the fact yeah. that they, oh yeah, yeah yeah the other four horsemen get cut and the scenes in the script book at was the end. Was he cast? It was even cast, and I really want to know who was cast. Ah. Because I don't know. But I know they had cast people, and I bet they would have been good. And I bet they were gutted. Yeah. But it was it was budget stuff, yeah. like filming on motorways, and they had to cut all the reins of fish stuff. Mm. And But, I mean, the uh, if I find it in the script book. Brackets, reins of fish also cut. How dare they cut the reins of fish? <laughs> well, because obviously the horsemen were meant to drive into the reins of fish uh, yeah the names that they give themselves are obviously slightly updated so pig mm-hmm. bog wants to be people taking selfies yeah um and uh then pig bog says i want to be really cool people i hate them i'm so post hipster i don't even use apps anymore and i drink beer with no alcohol in it um Ow. And it's just, it's just <laughs> a little thing and then obviously they drive into the things of fish and they all die um, but and uh, Scuzz is it ends on Scuzz I know who I am I'm people covered in fish yeah and I just I'm gutted that that's not there I get why but I wish I could have seen it yeah 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 Um, although I quite like how they you know have the four horse people meeting up instead and there's a nice chat between them yeah and the shot of death turning around from the quiz machine in his leathers and the Proper guitar, rock and roll, wang. Yeah. Uh, do you know what? I liked I liked that. I liked that shot. Mm. But the... I can understand why they didn't put it in because it's a little bit of a niche thing. But the fact he was just doing his, like, super duper answering all the questions at 300 miles an hour instead of being on the quiz machine with people yelling over his shoulder as it would be in a... <laughs> yeah, I, I did kind of miss that being yeah. there. But they haven't made him as conversational as he was in the book. And... Yeah. They haven't death. got the other four horsemen, so it would be weird just to put a couple of characters in. Just for yeah. shouting over his shoulder. I yeah. Get, yeah, I get why it's cut, but I do miss it. Yeah. There's some other interesting changes uh-huh. uh, from the book for this bit. So you've got Aziraphale realising that he can probably possess people because demons can do it. Yes. And I think that's just a nice, yeah. interesting... Demons can. Yeah. So, <laughs> I think it's just interesting that it, it's yeah. the overlap in the angel and angelic yeah. and demonic abilities. But we're from the same stock. We are. We're basically the yeah. same thing. Demon is fallen angel. Yeah. yeah. Therefore, I can possess people. Hmm. Yeah, uh, we already talked about this, but the fact that Adam's shift to human comes as he's sadly floating after his friends. And oh, the image of him almost as like a sad balloon trailing yeah. after them. Oh. <laughs> I just, I, I know it's not in the book, but it's such a good uh, yeah. visual. Yeah, the fact that rather than it being at the beginning of the book and part of the narration, explaining here that, that the M25 is on fire because it's, <laughs> And doing the flashback of Crowley explaining in a PowerPoint presentation. Yeah. Like, a, we get to revisit Crowley's facial hair from the 70s, which I love. Mm. Uh, the reaction of Hasta saying, what's a computer? Yes. Just the way he's like unappreciated in his own time. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And the whole thing with Thomas A. Dysonberger got cut, which I get why, but again, yeah, I yeah, kind of yeah. miss it. It was such a sweet point. Yeah, it was sweet. Um. 
So Aziraphale and Crowley check in. Uh-huh. Obviously, we've talked about him losing his best friend, but they reunite in the pub with Aziraphale's sort of yeah. ghostly appearance. Yeah. And again, sweet. the stuff the score does, the sort of really simple piano playing and they're so happy to see yeah. each other. And then um, I think almost as good as the loss of faith moment Michael Sheen does with his face is when Crowley tells him the bookshop's burned down. Oh, all, all of it. And he gets almost exactly this. It's almost that same yeah. sense of loss. It's almost as big oh. a loss as his faith to him. And Crowley genuinely seem, seeming pained to have to tell him. Yeah, like, he oh, really cared. It's, it's, it's gone. It's gone. It's burnt down. Oh. And then the little moment of delight where it's like, no, I've got that one. Yeah, I've <laughs> I got this one, this one. Yeah, I got the right one. <laughs> and so they agreed to meet up at the airbase. Yeah. And then obviously Crowley turns up at the airbase swaggering out of his burning car. And there's Madame Tracy and Aziraphale also in that same yeah. body. And the way he sort of doesn't really look and, and flirts a little bit and says, oh, I like the dress. And yeah. you can tell he's like really trying to not show how relieved he is that yeah, Aziraphale's yeah, yeah. there. <laughs> and it's, again, it's yeah. a really good bit of acting. Yeah. I would say the fact that, yeah, obviously he's trying not to be bothered, but at the same time, the fact that they're really not too fussed if they're in another body or whatever. Like they're, yeah. just, they're just corporeal. They're very corporeal cool with each other. beings. Yes. Yeah. Something like that. Um, the scene where Crowley's drunk mm. and he, he he's talking about the fact he didn't mean to fall. He just sort of met up with some people yeah. and then it just sort of happened. Yeah. Um, I really like that it sort of says that the reason Crowley can get to Tadfield and the Flaming Car is because he has an imagination and other demons don't. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the way he sort of does rediscover his faith in himself when he goes from trying to get away from danger to going into the danger mm, mm. that was what i was saying in the, oh i see when we talked yeah, about episode yeah, yeah. four this is where this is what this needed but the book didn't yeah is you had to see him lose faith in himself and come back into yeah. it and choose to go into danger yeah and seeing the moment he makes that choice while he's in the flaming car mm. is or in the car as it catches fire and he drives through the m25 yeah. while has to freaks out and then he gets like the mad face oh the grimace yeah his mad mad grimace as he mm. keeps going and again he's just got the best face for it it doesn't yeah. come off as gurney it comes off as what's the word grim determination mm. Mm. so i thought that was really good that was really good you're right you um, correctly. Uh, the conversation newton anathema have post quizzily oh yeah 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 um speaking of, of faith and mm. losing faith and things mm. new questions anathema's relationship to agnes yes uh and he says um do you you can't let a 400 year old witch tell you what to do yeah and he he kind of points out the agency that anathema's losing by doing whatever anathema says and it actually makes me more sympathetic to newt here yeah and elsewhere in the episode um anathema says she's never failed me sometimes i fail her and to me that line kind of stood out as weirdly reminiscent of, like, an abusive relationship. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. She's like, like, she's been telling you what to do the whole time, like, you've been acting without agency, and yet you failed her. Yeah. By what? By how? By losing the book? By, yeah. Yeah, it, it's weird. Yeah. And I think the show actually puts more, puts the uh, that relationship under a bit more of a microscope, mm. and it makes the choice at the end better with the sequel. Yeah. When we get on to episode six. 
And it does make me sympathise with Newt more because he's genuinely looking for this woman to have more of her own agency. Yeah. I think Terry Pratchett would have really approved of these slight changes because later on in the disc world, later on than Good Omens, that is, yeah. with the witches and that, there's a lot about how controlling a narrative kind of makes you a bit evil. Yeah. Eventually. And trying to have the control leads to corruption. Yeah. And I think that's hinted at here. I think it in definitely the stuck. Agnes world, she was a very cool character. Was like not really thinking, possibly about the complete lack of agency this would give her clearly yeah. beloved descendants. Yeah, it starts to address Anathema's lack of agency, and yeah. it makes me sympathise with Newt more. But it was it is also um, where in the book Newt's job is to play the straight man to Anathema's occultism. Here, yeah. he's playing stating reality as it is including agnes's prophecy yeah while anathema is caught up in the story of it if that makes sense yeah and his objections to the whole situation are a lot more mature and a lot less oh i don't want an old woman looking over my shoulder while i have sex and a lot more are you okay yeah yeah (laughs) i think it's quite an interesting like it's a subtle shift but i think it's an interesting point yeah good point i like that um speaking of anathema actually uh I noticed this in her episode and then again with famine coming to the airport. Yeah. Uh, so when Anathema turns up, she's a woman of colour. Yeah. She's uh, South American. Yeah. And she turns up at the airport and they're like, what are you here for? And she says something really fucking weird. Yeah. And then she's like, oh, just visiting. Well, that sounds fun. <laughs> and famine turns up and they're like, what are you here for? And he's like, the end of the world. And they're like, oh yeah, fine, go through. This is twice people of colour turn up at the airport and say really weird shit and are just waved through and that would not happen in the real world. Like, if a person of colour turns up at the airport and says weird shit, they're in a weird little room for a while. I almost felt like that was deliberate. I wasn't sure if it was deliberate or not. Because it's so obvious and there is no way in hell that Neil Gaiman's not aware of that. I don't know. I thought it was just trying to put another comedy moment in. It's funny that someone's saying that and it's not being reacted to. But I... think if there were more people of colour on a writing team they would have said no because they wouldn't have done that because this is what would have happened there's also the fact that although they are people of colour they are American people of colour which in England there is a distinction there is a distinction but Um, I still think the racism is generally a lot stronger towards people of colour with I still think there's enough instance (laughs) I mean we're both white so we can't really speculate that much on but I can speculate wildly. We just oh, don't we can speculate know. Wild. I just think um, it's. Be- I was reading a Twitter thread yesterday of, um, and it was um, a black woman talking about how you can tell if it people of color are written entirely by white people. Yeah. Um, and one of the things is is um, thinking we won't code switch, thinking we're not on guard in a certain way. I'm really watching what we say in places like this, and obviously, famine is actually a for- horseman of the apocalypse. Yeah, yeah, course, it makes more sense for yeah. him. But with anathema as well, I just thought it was a. It was. I don't think it's necessarily bad, but I think it was something worth noticing. Yeah, no, it's. Um, I did notice it. I noticed it and thought, I think they've deliberately done that. However, I can see why you think the opposite. Yeah, I did. I didn't weirdly. think it was <laughs> deliberate. Yeah, I didn't think it did enough to acknowledge it, and yeah. to still be deliberate. Yeah, I think it was just written as it would be funny to have someone show up at the airport and say that, and yeah. I don't think it had that extra depth of thought to it. Okay. But either way, we're wildly speculating. Mm. Um, As is our entire premise. Yep. So I thought that was interesting. Um, What else have we got? Oh, yeah. So the spirit guide. I want to point out that I'm clearly 
either this had stayed in the back of my mind or just I think in the same direction as Neil Gaiman that I said last week my spirit guide would have been a nine-year-old Victorian orphan (laughs) but I I am glad they changed that and they um they also obviously they take out a lot of Shadwell being a bit racist and Mm -hmm. they took out the stuff about Xerophel traveling which I think may have had something to do with is there a way we can show these different cultures sensitively or it might have just been cut for time restraint time constraints I don't know yeah because I think I think definitely getting rid of the Haitian bit was probably a good shout for this bit. But I think the American bit could have been funny. But that would have been a budget and a time thing. Yeah, the televangelist bit would have been really funny. Um, But again... Yeah, televangelist is still fair game. Yeah, very much still fair game. (laughs) But um, Aboriginal culture and walkabouts and things, maybe not so much. Yeah. But I thought it was interesting, uh, like, changing the spirit guide and cutting Chadwell being a bit racist. And I found this quote from Neil Gaiman... Um, and it, it was someone asking him on Tumblr, like, was it your choice to cut this? And he said, this is me, and uh, or, they cut this, and I thought it was really good. And he said, they is me, and yes, I did. Along with a homophobic comment from a small kid at a party, which was originally yeah. intended as something that would show how awful the kid was, but which I simply wouldn't do now. And the wasabi car voice messages, which I didn't feel I could pull off in any way that wasn't offensive. Mm. But given that the budget didn't stretch to creating a completely original dreadful car, we just gave new to Reliant Robin as Dick Turpin. Shadwell was still pretty awful in the script, but somehow on the screen, Michael McKean manages to imbue him with so much joy in what he does that you cannot help falling just a little bit in love with him. Yeah. And I like that it was acknowledged that while the, the the it was never a negative intention in the book yeah it didn't need to be in the show and it works kind of better without it yeah the yeah the broken uh east asian english thing is very difficult to do on screen without being weird yeah it's it can still be quite funny in writing because literally translations are funny translations. but doing it with the accent is weird yeah yeah i, I um, I, however, I do feel like we're missing out on the haiku because of that. But yeah. definitely understand that choice. <laughs> I understand the choice, but I kind of miss the haiku. Yeah. But I however, think... it's nice to see a Reliant Robin on the telly because it's been a little while. Yep. Um, we're still, uh, whenever I see Reliant Robins, I know most people think of Only Fools and Horses, but mm. for me it will be the car that the father has in uh, the George and Nicholson books. Oh, yes. Because <laughs> that was How when bizarre. I first became aware yeah. of what... Because I didn't I've watch... I've forgotten that. Yeah, that was, that was when I first became aware of what one mm. of those was. Book recommendation for you, dear listeners. Angus, thongs, thongs and, and full frontal, frontal snogging. snogging. As far as I hear, don't bother with the movie. And I think in America the book's called something else. Possibly. The second book is called It's Okay, I'm Wearing Really Big Knickers, which yeah. I still say whenever... I still... I say use... that all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Which is great, because no one else who knows me understands what I'm talking about, apart from you. <laughs> Do you know what? The George Nicholson books are like a precursor to the trendy way of naming podcasts, which we do, which is just taking a weird, out-of-context bit of... Uh, yeah. Conversation and making Angus it a Angus Dunn's Front of Snogging. It's okay, I'm wearing really big knickers. Something about bazookas. And then he <laughs> ate my boy in trances. Yes. <laughs> uh, love is a many is a many trousered thing. Yeah. <laughs> God, I love these books so much. Oh, fuck. uh, Sometimes I wish, I wish, I wish I was a teenager again, very rarely, just so I could reread those with the kind of girlish hysteria. That is such a sexist thing to say. But the kind of teenage hysteria. The screaming giggles and and you'd all lend them to each other. And like those books were probably the formative part of my comedy. Yeah. 
like they're, they're the first thing that w- was funny for me yeah before it was funny for anyone else read any interviews with louise reddison i have because she's passed away now yeah quite recently which is very very sad she's yeah. been quite young um but i remember yeah the formative thing was comedy i remember reading an interview with her and her just saying i just I just thought back and remembered what I would have found funny when I was 14 and went from there. I was like, oh yeah, you kind of don't need to be so weird about it. But it was the (laughs) first time I think I really read teenagers written like me who weren't Mm. like the TV teenagers. See, I watch a lot of American TV. Yeah, I read a lot of American young adult novels. And yeah. Yeah. And all all the, or it was Jacqueline Wilson and Mm -hmm. everyone, there was always a a tragic backstory. Had a tragic backstory (laughs) and there was a learning moment. And these were just, girls being silly around each other like yeah. do you remember how stupid you'd always be around yes, each other as teenagers much. and you would you'd shove a pencil case under your bra yeah. was, or, and every now and then I still think of these books when I do something really stupid they are perfect perfect <laughs> yeah. perfect books for 14 year olds and oh. I have reread them more recently than that yeah I need to buy myself a set um I've got like half of them on Kindle and a couple yeah, of physical I think, copies. I think I want the physical copies. I, I think, think I will I probably the buy them as a box set yeah. at some point. Anyway, sorry. We sorry, yeah. <laughs> huge digression there. Worth it. Um, so worth it. Um, God, I completely forgot what I was talking about. The other things I had to say about this episode are all really little bits. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I liked the maggot bit. It's not quite as horrifying as the book. I did because... like it, but I just thought like, I understand why they didn't do the horrifying book bit because that would probably be weird it's still fairly horrifying i mean maggots still eat everyone in the office yeah but like i was watching it going yeah but that's not like a maggot thing made up of other maggot things is it? no i mean it's still a swarm of maggots yeah. it's fairly horrific mm. i was just listening to no such thing as a fish when they were talking about jumping maggots oh mm. maggots can jump some of them yeah i'm not okay with that yeah no. i don't want to know that Sorry. um little easter egg uh that like everyone has spotted but the guard at the gate to the airbase is reading american gods not everyone had you not spotted that? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, he's reading American Gods. Good. Glad to and it's it. the UK, it's the it's the, that UK pub, uh, cover, not the one we have that's black and gold, but uh-huh. the newer one that's where if you get a bunch of his paperbacks, they all make a picture of a tree or something, but I haven't uh-huh. done that because... I don't have the shelf space right now. No. And everything that he's released since they came out with that paperback design, I've got new in hardback. Ah, uh, yeah. Because I got Ocean at the End of the Lane and Trigger Warning and... Yeah. Anyway, sorry, enough about me being sad and collecting books. Uh, oh, the, when the horse... I feel like this is the kind of audience who Get will me. not call you sad for collecting books. Yeah, right, fine. This is your safe space, Joanna. Oh, good. Oh, good. Um, Even though I mo- mercilessly mock you, you mercilessly. I'm mock definitely me the antagonist in this. Okay, cool. Oh God, I'm the hero. Yeah. Oh, you're the one with the funny coloured hair. Oh yeah, good point. No, that makes me a manic pixie dream girl. No, that makes you an anime protagonist. Oh, it depends on the face of the moon. <laughs> um, we just had a full moon. What does that mean? Uh, manic pixie dream girl oh, unfortunately I've got to sit cross-legged and eat something with chopsticks while giggling oh that's right it's the half moon that's witchy yeah according to Pratchett thank you Pratchett he's always right yep anyway. where are we? fuck sorry <laughs> VFX what's that? okay so you know um, the horse people have come into the airbase and mm. they start screwing around with the computers mm. and f- the way like because you you one of your favorite quotes when we were talking about the book was the description of the earth covered Ooh, in this filigree. Yeah, yeah 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 and i think the way they did it was really yeah, good yeah, yeah. i think the the visual effect of and cut, cutting to panicking nuclear yeah. power stations and yeah. everything but just the way you saw the light shift across the whole world yeah and the way as every time it cuts back to the horse people they that was less and less human wasn't it, it visual was. light 
fallback. <laughs> the whole light fallback, but every time, yeah, everyone looking slightly less mm. human, like... Mm. Famine's teeth get sharper and war starts falling yeah. and pollution sort of oozing. Yeah, I um, I loved it. I loved all of those effects. I felt uh, I was slightly unsure about pollution's one because I felt like they kept them a little bit more human than the other two. Yeah, I think it was... It I'm was not a... sure if that... Maybe that's because it's a very human thing. Yeah, and also I think it's a harder thing to make someone yeah. look more and more like a yeah, person. you don't really want to cover them on oil. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that was all I had for episode five. Okay, cool. Um, um, let me think. Uh, do you have any more thoughts I before do. we sure I do. get on to the, them already. I'm sorry. the um, end of the world proper? What have I got here? Oh, no, do you know what? I think I covered everything I wanted to. Um, oh, I was just thinking something while we were talking about the airbase, and now it's gone out of my head. But we're, we're in the airbase again next episode, so we'll... Are we? Yeah. Where yeah, does this one end? This, this ends in the airbase uh, as Adam and his friends arrive yes everyone's kind of arriving at once and it's sort of this cliffhanger of the world is ending now mm-hmm. yeah adam and his friends have turned up to try and oh that's it. no that's right yeah no that was just a little bit like when they uh when uh zero fail yeah and madame tracy and shadwell are kind of trying to finagle their way in and the, well, the kids just the kids just cycle the through yeah. yeah it's like and they're in trouble as well but you're in trouble <laughs> four side sergeant a dysonberger oh I wish he had got to go home and have a nice well, time. Well, he definitely did. Yes, we just didn't yeah, get to see it. Yeah, we just didn't get to see it. It was still a zero fell that banished him. So. Oh, yeah, so it still was. Okay, so episode six, the very last day of the rest of their lives. Hey. So in this episode, shall I summarise? Please do. We open on the trial of the demon Crowley. Oh, dramatic. And then we re- rewind. Sorry, <laughs> re- re- Sorry. Jesus. <laughs> We've been recording for a really long time. <laughs> okay, so we open on the trial of the demon Crowley. Mm. We rewind back to Crowley arriving at the airface. Yeah. We see the four horse people of the apocalypse face off against them and lose. Mm. Newt manages to turn off the computers that are trying to plan Armageddon and in, takes part in saving the world. Yeah. And uh, as Anathema receives her copy of the nice and accurate prophecies back, a stray prophecy lands with a zero fail. Mm. Ooh. Mm. Beelzebub and Gabriel turn up to have a go. Oh, God, I misspelled Gabriel. Gabriel. Uh, <laughs> it's in my notes, not yours. Um, Gabriel. Beels and Gabriel. More like Gabriel, am I right? <laughs> Hansy. Anyway, Beelzebub and Gabriel turn up to have a go at Adam for stopping the apocalypse. And as they're trying to scream at him that the war has to happen, uh, mm. we get the lovely argument about whether it's the great plan or the ineffable plan that confuses them and they run away. <laughs> Uh, they realize everyone realizes that Satan's about to turn up, so Crowley quickly stops time and has a chat with Adam, saying it's up to you what happens next. Mm. Adam explains to Satan that you're not my real dad, and his real dad, Mister Young, turns up. Um, and in theory, apocalypse averted, everything seems all right. Aziraphale and Crowley have a lovely chat on a park bench before taking the bus back to London. Mm. International Express man turns up to reclaim all the bits and pieces, but then. Heaven and hell aren't happy oh. with Aziraphale and Crowley. Oh, no. They're taken away. Oh. Because there's going to be a trial. A trial? Because they averted the apocalypse. Oh, they did. They did. I saw that. Um, then, brief interlude. The sequel to the nice and accurate prophecies of Agnes Nutter arrives with Newton Anathema and she decides that she doesn't want to be a descendant the rest of her life. Mm. Madam Tracy sits down with... Uh, I, I've done this in a funny order, sorry. Sorry? I've done this in a bit of a funny order. 
Oh no, I'm sorry, I'm not frowning at you, I'm frowning because I turned to the last page of my notes and clearly it was late at night by that point. Ah, okay. yeah, mine is still handwritten. <laughs> Madam Tracy uh, sits down to dinner with Mr Shadwell and asks if he'd like to move into I the nice little bungalow so together. so sweet. Oh God, again, Miranda Richardson, love her. We get the resolution of the trial and discover that uh, Aziraphale and Crowley in fact switch bodies to get away with each other's respective punishments. <sighs> I have things to say about that whole thing. I have so many things to say about that whole thing. We see Adam chasing his dog off over a field. Xerophon and Crowley go to dinner at the Ritz. And the Nightingale sings in Berkeley Square. Right. You couldn't hear it over the track. (laughs) But it was there. I know because I was there. (laughs) Okay, so there's like, there's no new characters really introduced um, apart from there's a Little Hell's Usher, the little dude that gets uh, dissolved during Crowley's <laughs> trial, is Andy Hamilton. He's yeah. Been in lots of. He's a very We're good British comedian. <laughs> Which is, he's funny. And then obviously the big thing is Satan, uh, voiced mm. by Benedict Cumberbatch, who is just doing a smog voice. Yeah. He's not even doing the motion. Is someone else doing the motion capture? Um, um, should we talk about that bit now? Well, the, the, it's the character. Yeah, me as well. I don't think they should have had him there. Really? I think it should have been more like in the book. The crack was coming, the volcano was coming. I think possibly the start of the shadow of his apparition should have been there. And then Adam's belief turns it into his dad. I think having that whole... Right, A... Mm -hmm. Sorry, here are my thoughts. (laughs) Do it. A, like, so much of the theme is the fact that angels and demons are from the same stock and are more or less the same. And yet they bring the head of this fucking questioning revolutionary force up and he's this massive fucking red dickhead. Yeah. Um, B, I think because you can't, I think this is the same problem I have with a lot of fantasy TV and movies. It doesn't You can't look... portray this in the same way that you can write it. No, it it's doesn't never look gonna... big and scary enough. Yeah. It can't look it big will. and scary enough it, and it can't look realistic because it's not real. Yeah. Um, in in everybody's head, the devil is going to look like something slightly different and more terrifying. And it's like, like, don't try, don't try and do it. Yeah. And also, I I just didn't, I didn't care for it. Um, I didn't. I think they had a really good chance for it to be sinister, building up. The shadow starts to form, and then. And I think you could have still used Benedict Cumberbatch and had some of that voiceover. Yeah, yeah, the voice. Yeah, fine. The voice, because I think there needed to be a bit where. The part of the reason this is there is in the book, it's Beelzebub that Adam kind of faces off with. Yeah. But because they brought Beelzebub in as more of a character to mm. be this parallel to Gabriel, there needed to be a bigger yeah. thing for Adam to face off against. And I really liked the whole, you're not my dad, that's my dad. And I, for that reason, I understand why they brought Satan in, so he could yell yeah. that. Because it give, it was this uh, like chosen family mm. moment, and I really love that. Yeah. And, it, and it is Adam choosing humanity over yeah. everything else. I thought that was really sweet. Yeah. I see why they did it. I, I think it was a weird choice, but... What what do I know? It works. I, I don't make cool TV. No. It was one I mean I didn't hate it, but mm. I it didn't need to be there, you're right. Yeah. Um But anyway, that's literally the only negative thing I have to say about this episode, so that's fine. There's a um but the way Bendit Cumberbatch does it is qu- there's quite a good little ri- line reading with the way he says, You're my rebellious son, come here and he it, the pauses are in a really weird place in the sentence that makes it less human. Yeah. Um and I really, really liked that. Yeah. Apart from that, I couldn't really give a fuck about it. I mean, like, I like Benedict. <laughs> I like Benedict Cumberbatch, but he's just doing smog. <laughs> it's just smog voice. Yeah. Um, 
he was actually very he was the best thing about the Hobbit films because I didn't watch that don't far. watch the Hobbit films I watched the first one I remember nothing about it apart from them having radic acid in there and they didn't even do it well so yeah no that I gave up at that point oh, those fucking films I was very upset when I heard it was going to be a trilogy yeah I'm... my one of really one of my top three favorite books of all time and no, I was like you're to gonna happen. stretch that into a fucking trilogy are you yeah right no, no. Yeah. It would make quite a good TV series, actually. Like a limited series like Good Omens. Like, a, oh, like oh, six hour long episodes. Make Neil Gaiman write it. I feel like he's busy. Yeah, okay, probably. <laughs> it's fine, I'll just... Make him! <laughs> I was just going to do it, but fine. Okay, yeah, you do it, you do it. No, it's fine. I like Neil, Neil Gaiman. Gaiman. Yeah, it's fine. Alright, no, you can't get offended if I say Neil Gaiman. <laughs> <laughs> can't really think Neil Gaiman's a better writer than me, just because that's objectively true. <laughs> God, Francine... Um, so far yeah no I, I'm, I'm with you on the Satan mm-hmm. thing favourite okay so I'm going to do a least favourite oh. quote slash line reading oh. which is uh, I think I talked in the last episode about the fact that some of the, the feminist things yeah, Pepper yeah. say feel really bleh. <laughs> when she turns to war and says I do not condone everyday sexism that was so cringe it made me laugh it made me giggle but it was also cringy yeah. like, I felt like saying something about the sexism is a bit funny. But yeah. that, it's not everyday sexism? No, that's not what everyday sexism no. <laughs> is. And the everyday sexism Twitter thing and the website and everything was yeah. a really interesting project that got... Uh, yeah, that, it, it didn't work for me. I didn't like that. No. But I can also see, as a younger girl watching it, kind of having a bit of a punch-the-air moment. Yeah. And I did really... That's it. It's, it's for the kids. Yeah. And like I said, it's nothing against the actor because, like, a line later, she does the I believe in peace bitch and stamps on War's foot, and I love that. Yeah. And um, when, after it's all over, Anathema refers to Newt as her boyfriend, she says another deluded victim of the patriarchy. I kind of like that. I thought yeah, that, that was quite funny. That was out of character, but that one worked for me. It was funny. Yeah. My favourite line reading is, is is the two of them in the Ritz saying to the world, because... <sighs> right, so <laughs> let's get to the end of the episode before we just sigh over how much, how much we love them. Yeah. Best use of a Queen song in this episode is Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> Oh, you actually did that for a riff, though. Uh, no, no, I missed it for a couple oh, okay. because there were a couple that didn't really have any good Queen moments. But Bohemian Rhapsody playing as uh, Crowley draws up to the, the devil's. <laughs> no, wait. Uh, which it's, bit is it's it? the guitar solo. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Um, as he drives up to the gates, and I really liked that mm-hmm. because, like, it was Crowley showing up in a flaming car and swaggering out of it to flirt with Madame Tracy as a seraphel. <laughs> Like it was, it was just cool. Yeah, it was cool. He's, he yeah, was, was cool. Yeah, was Crow- cool. Crowley's got his mojo back. Yes. Is it Crowley or Crowley? I've been saying Crowley. I think I've been veering madly between the two. Well, Aziraphale says Crowley. All right. <laughs> and I'm going to go with what Michael Sheen says because I love him. He's okay. precious. All right, Crowley it is. Excellent. Uh, so the big changes between this and the book. Uh, the change in how the face-off with the horse people happens, I think, mm. is interesting. Mm. In the book, it's about them bringing their childish homemade versions of weapons. Yeah. In this, it becomes about belief. It's about them believing in the antithesis of the horse people. So Pepper says, I believe in peace. And mm-hmm. Wensley Dale believes in a healthy lunch. <laughs> <laughs> I love Wensley Dale so much. Um, a healthy lunch. <laughs> and Brian believes in a qu- clean world. Which... Yeah, which is... Not Brian. Weird, yeah. <laughs> but then Pepper's not peaceful. No, no. Yeah. It works. Um, it works, but only if you don't think about it. 
And I think they put that in because it would be very difficult to portray visually how a little kid believes a stick and some whatever is scales. Yeah. It, it keeps it... Because it was it's about the power of belief in the mm-hmm. book as well, but I think this is a better way to do it. It needed dialogue rather than just being a visual. Yeah, it's a lot more dramatic, climaxy. It Yeah. Well, what I found interesting is... Um, uh, no game was talking about the fact that the beginning of season six the beginning of episode six was originally the end of episode five but six was too short and five was too long yeah so this was meant to be the climax of the penultimate episode the yeah. entire final episode was meant to be epilogue yeah and instead they kind of moved the climax to the beginning of the final episode and then the rest is epilogue yeah it's a really interesting pacing choice mm. because it's very rare especially in a limited series that you get this long a resolution section and i you know me i fucking love an epilogue oh i love it i love it i love everything wrapping up i love montages i love clips yeah and yeah yeah no. <laughs> to have a whole episode in a mini series yeah that just wraps things up yeah. and, you and the half hour clip happy. pre-log pre-log what Help. um soft open yeah um i thought it was interesting i don't know if that's where i would have put the climax uh-huh. of it um to have the climax of the horse people and then the time stop and then the devil is kind of like, right, let's have three big climaxes yeah. and then a 40 minute epilogue. Yeah. It's a very fun, weird pacing thing that kind of works because yeah. it's not what you'd normally get. Mm. Um, and it's very soothing. Yeah. I like having so much resolution. Yeah. But yeah, the shift in, in how they do the power of belief thing, I thought was, it was a good choice, but I think it is more impressive in the book because of the whole thing of sticks and string. Yes. But again, it's not really. Yeah. <laughs> That'll be very difficult to do. The biggest change from the book is this trial and body swap bit. That is yeah, in the book which is just completely complete added yeah. in. And I think, like, obviously that's some of the stuff that they talked about maybe for the sequel or that they just never made it into the book. I love it, though. Yeah. Love it so much. It's so good. The moment before Aziraphale walks into the flame, again, Michael Sheen's face, one second where he suddenly becomes Crowley. Yeah. Dusty goes in. But, um, oh, can I do my favourite line? Yeah, yeah, sorry, I've, I've overtaken you completely. No, that's all right. Usually I didn't write one down, but for this one I did. Um, Don't talk to me about the greater good, sunshine. I'm the archangel fucking Gabriel. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Again, judicious and use of shut the your word stupid fuck. mouth and die already. Yep. John, John Ham's cheerfully, John madly Ham. evil happiness just... just oh. Don't talk to me about the greater good, sunshine. I'm the archangel, archangel fucking Gabriel. Gabriel. Yeah. Oh, um, I also, I've written down the words "the peculiar honor," and I can't remember what it pertains to because, as I said, this is what I was frowning at earlier. I'm ah. not really sure what my notes are anymore. Yeah, no, I've got no idea. Um, I have the peculiar honor of something. It must have been, but maybe I'll think of it in a minute. That was the other line I liked. Yeah, that, I think that was something to do with one of the trials. I mean, yeah. yeah, like I said, I loved everything about it. I, I, it's kind of fun trying to work out where the switch has taken place and yeah. when they start playing each other. Yeah, because once you've watched for me, it, it was that moment. Well, I th- well, the switch has happened before. That, oh yeah, obviously. no, sorry, yeah, but that's like yeah. when the when it's meant to become apparent. I think. Yeah, I think it's <laughs> just as they go into it, but like, yeah. there's once you know mm. if you start looking for the hints, there's yeah. quite a lot of them. Yeah. And it's it's really subtle acting. There's a moment where Michael Sheen... There's a really nice Easter egg where um, Michael Sheen... Aziraphale refer, returns to the bookshop. Yeah. And by this point, it is Crowley and Aziraphale's body. Because the only place... Oh, is can, it? Oh. I think. Because the... Like, it's yeah. never explicitly stated. But what but else? Yeah. The only... They're together when they get the bus. Yeah. 
then they're apart and then they're together in St. James's Park and get taken from there. Yeah. So it must be before that St. James's Park bit. Mm. So I think by these points we... Um, so you see Aziraphale in his shop and yeah. um, obviously it's been rebuilt, but Adam did it. So there's just Will- there's a whole thing of just <laughs> yeah, William. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I love that because of the William the Antichrist thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something in the way he says something that's, if you know to look for it, is a bit uh, okay. different. Okay. And then the moment Crowley sees his Bentley, but then hails a cab. Oh. I thought that was kind of like, because oh. it's Aziraphale. Aziraphale's not going to drive the Bentley. Yeah, I had a moment of thinking, oh, maybe that's just because he he likes it parked there or something but yeah that doesn't make much sense yours does okay yes yeah. win um there's and just uh the way when michael sheen is is crowley he's he's just drawing out his vowels a bit more and he's yeah. just slightly looser and david tennant is slightly more upright and, and then slightly later when they're on the bench that oh, is the completely... most impressive bit of fucking posture i have ever yeah, seen from the two of them david tennant postures. like so closed in legs together sitting like a and lady Michael <laughs> fucking legs akimbo taking up <laughs> like two thirds of the yeah. bench trying to do the david tennant limping man and spreading well. yeah. <laughs> but he's just not got quite enough limb but oh. yeah the posture was perfect so yeah so that takes us to obviously the aziraphale and crowley check-in mm-hmm. the body swap is incredible mm-hmm. um Crowley taking a bath for David Tennant's knees. Sexier than anything between Newton and Anathema. <laughs> Why is that sexy? Like, he's in a singlet and socks. That is the least sexy outfit a man could wear apart from a t-shirt and no underwear. I think, well, A, because it's David Tennant. Yes, he's got very sexy knees. And B, because it's 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 odd and looks a little, like, rebellious and strange. And, and ridiculous. A... And he's, flat, he's yeah. flicking the water at them and he asks the Archangel Michael for a rubber duck. I feel like it's for theoretically the same reason that a woman in a wet dress that's gone a bit see-through is a bit more titillating than just seeing a, a naked, naked woman, woman some yeah, of the time. Yeah, that's know? fair. Um, I can't explain why the socks work, but that's just David Tennant for you. <laughs> the socks work because it's David Tennant. Um, I think it's a bit... I was more convinced in those scenes by Michael Sheena's... Crowley, uh, sorry, by Aziraphale's, Crowley's Aziraphale than I was by Aziraphale's, uh, Crowley, help me, help me. You were more convinced. I was more convinced by the heaven bit, yeah. by Michael Sheen playing um, David Tennant than by David Tennant playing Michael Sheen, just because I can't imagine Michael Sheen as Aziraphale, like, with his legs splayed like that in the bath. Yeah, I think, I it's kind of nice if you think about it as, like, yeah, it's like him never now gets an excuse this to role. let loose. Yeah, yeah. I think, like, he's having fun. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the bit where he asked for the rubber duck and then later when they're on the... I asked the Archangel Michael for a rubber <laughs> duck. <laughs> and that's like getting revenge on your dickhead boss. Moment, yeah, yeah. Kind of. So I really liked that. But also before the switch, when they're on that bench at the end sharing a bottle of wine before yeah. the bus turns up and they're sort of... It's almost a bit like the end to their star-crossed lovers narrative and mm. the bit where Crowley turns to Aziraphale and says, we don't have sides anymore. Yeah. And obviously somewhere between that scene and, and the body swap, there is a conversation where they realise what they have to do. Mm. That's interesting, isn't it? Because it's a really quiet resolution to the star-crossed lovers bit instead of drama. any climax or drama to it. It's just a... Well, but, obviously there was a climax in drama, but that was kind of to do with more important things. Yeah. <laughs> and then afterwards they're like, oh, wait, that kind of means that... Like, what do we do now? Yeah. And obviously they, they come up with this plan and they must do that on the bus to get heaven yeah. and hell to leave them alone. But the way they're on the bench and they, the way David Tennant looks at Michael Sheen 
And he looks at him the way like Aziraphale has been looking at Crowley for most of the episode. I'm going to have to rewatch this whole bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, again, it's just a good acting moment. The music swells and it's really similar to the way the music swells uh, when Crowley hands Aziraphale the bag of books after the bombing bit in the World War yeah. II scene. Like mm. it's almost exactly the same swell of music. Mm. Mm. And it... Ah. Uh, ha. It very much earned me shipping them in the way I was grumpy about in season two. Ah, cool. Episode um, two. I keep saying season. I Jesus. wrote the rest of the Sound of Music verse for the Renegade Angels all tied up with string. Would you like to hear that? Yes, please. Okay, so shall I try and sing it? And then yes. if it goes terribly, I'll read it. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> oh, wow. Singing into a microphone makes me all horrified again. Yeah. Shit. Oh, wow. That's horrible. Yeah. That's so weird. It's like I'm doing it. the open mic again and I hated it so much. Jesus. Don't don't sing it if you don't want to. Purity, piety, prayers and tradition. Platitudes masking malicious ambition. Renegade angels all tied up with string. These are a few of our favourite things. That's amazing. I wanted to write the rest, but it was very late at night. So I, I love you not. so much, Francine. That's perfect. <laughs> yeah. um, there should really be one for the demons, and I'll leave that to you. Okay. Homework. Okay. <laughs> that can be my homework. Please write that down for me, because I never remember my homework. Sorry, I don't even know how to phrase the sound. Homework, homework, Joe. Demonic. Right, arrow to that. There we go. <laughs> okay. Cool. That'll make sense tomorrow. <laughs> um, there is uh, really good chemistry between Gabriel and Beelzebub when you see them actually on screen together. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? They're very much the counterparts. Yeah, but it's really good. I could, I could watch like a, a whole half hour of just those two. Mm-hmm kind of working together because they almost are they like they want yeah. the same thing they want the war yeah whereas when it was the archangel michael yeah she was very much more kind of mm. hands off mm. yeah just doing this because this is what we do and clear and here's the water and now i'm going yeah and gabriel's definitely more hands-on which makes sense as he's the archangel gabriel yeah although not actually an archangel no although also i know he is in this but in the bible he's, he's not, not an archangel no, it's just an angel no but can you imagine John Hamm as Gabriel delivering the news to Mary? <laughs> yes. Be not afraid, Jesus Christ. Be not afraid. Okay. So you're gonna have the Messiah. Yeah. See ya. That's it. That's it. Just, um, just I, I want them to have yeah. put that in. It would have been horrible. I don't know how you're gonna explain this to your husband, but not you my are problem. pregnant. <laughs> you are gonna have the Messiah. Good luck with that. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I really love that. I like, um, yeah, like I said, I already talked about Anathema mm-hmm. choosing to burn the sequel. Mm. Um, her claiming her own agency is a really, really satisfying resolution for her. Mm. More so here than the book again, because in the book yeah. it's Newt puts his hand on his, her shoulder and says, yeah. do you want to be... A... Whereas this, she's made the de- point before he... She's made the decision before he makes that point. Yeah, and you seem quietly approving. Yeah, no, I'm into it. Yeah. I'd actually, I actually, I like... Supportive supportive of her leaving the weird Sup- dynamic yeah supportive boyfriend rather than making the choice for her mm-hmm. i think that was that was good um good boy newt and yet the way the ending changes uh compared to the book actually before i talk about this uh-huh. um did you have any other points to make Cause this a- oh this is probably now bullshit and was quite likely to be bullshit anyway um but now you've said they've swapped bodies by this point, it's even more so because obviously they had. But when they ordered the ice cream, I thought maybe it was a weird bit of symbolism because uh, Aziraphale got an ice cream 
uh, a vanilla with a flake. So it's vanilla, but with something else. Yeah. And then Curly got a red lolly with vanilla inside. Uh, right? I mean, I think there's probably... Like, I'm looking into that too far. I feel, but, like, I feel like a choice was definitely made about what ice creams they were going to Yeah, have. right? They had yeah. to make a choice. They didn't both just get, like, the soft serve with a... Yeah. Yeah, right? So I feel like there was uh, something intentional in there. What else have I got? I've got... Oops, sorry. Yeah. Table. <laughs> uh, I've written down 3004 question mark I don't know what that meant um, that's ancient Mesopotamia where the Noah thing happened BC cool well I don't know when it was referenced in episode 6 but it was okay. um, <laughs> uh, oh Dagon is a demon that turns up Lord of the Files yeah he's another Lovecraftian one. Oh, is he mm-hmm. oh good so that's good to know um, I liked War's little boys with your toys thing because it was a the really... little boys with their toys is very much the like war. Yeah, that's what she infantile war kind of thing that's uh, referenced in oh every fucking story ever. Yep, that's one of the backbones of some stories. That was a really really good line delivery. I really liked her in that. Yeah. She's the right balance of sinister. Yeah, uh, you've put here that the uh, the effects of Death Wings is a oh, beautiful yeah. moment. I've put. Actually, I'm not like considering the way it was described at the same time it was going on. I loved the I loved what they did, yeah. but I thought it was going to be the actual the wing spread, and it was that black cut out against the. Oh, see, I like the fact that for a second it overtook everything mm-hmm. because they've just had so much happen to have a second where there was nothing on the screen but that, and imagining yeah. that for the people watching it there was nothing else for them but that. When yeah. you think about the fact that death is so all-encompassing and the whole point of death is that he never really goes away. Yes, okay, yeah. To yeah. have that take over the screen for a minute and be beautiful in it, I think there was a hint of Pratchett's death to that moment. Yeah, yeah, there was. definitely. That there wasn't there. with the rest of the portrayal of death. So that's why I liked mm-hmm. that bit so much. Yeah, as I said, it was beautifully done. It's just not what I was expecting. Yeah. Um, and it's weird to be kind of expecting a certain bit of VFX yeah, so the other bit I've got is the line, and I'm pretty sure this was in the book as well, but I didn't appreciate the significance of it until I heard it aloud. Yeah. Um, there never was an apple, in Adam's opinion, that wasn't worth the trouble you got into for eating it. Which is a reference to the apple. The fucking apple, the Bible apple. Whereas, not... No, when I was reading it, I was just like, oh, yeah, no, it's like, oh, it's like, you know, when you're little yeah. and you get an apple and it's amazing and it doesn't matter that you get in trouble running away. And I just thought it was a nice, another nice little Enid yeah, Blyton no, was... moment. And I'm like, oh, no, wait, really heavy handed biblical reference I didn't get. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that was very much there. Mm. I, I, I did spot that. Yeah, that was the ending of it. Um, and yeah, that takes us to the ending ending, which is different. Yeah, so they changed it. So in the book, and we talked about it when we were talking about the book, I love the ending to the book of imagining a boy slouching hopefully towards mm-hmm. Tadfield forever. I think it's a perfect yeah. place for the book to end. Yeah. But because the series focuses so much more on Aziraphale and Crowley, mm. it, it doesn't. You see Adam running in the summer and there's a lovely voiceover about the summer coming to yeah. an end and he's chasing his friends. And I thought actually, sorry, just interrupting one more time, I thought another really good bit of acting from that little boy Oh yeah, is... The dog going away and the expression on his face, which is the happy, oh no, yeah. kind of, dog, no, don't do that, <laughs> running after it. He's a really good actor, actually, isn't he? Yeah, I'm quite curious to see like what he grows up into because I think yeah. he's going to do some really good stuff. Yeah, um, but yeah, so instead of that, so the ending, that, ending. It ends on Aziraphale and Crowley and... I, 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 as much as I think the ending to the book is perfect, I think this is the perfect ending to this. Mm. 
and what I kind of thought of as a throwaway joke in the book becomes so significant here of they're in the Ritz yeah and obviously you have that but they lean back in their chairs and they they cheers to the world yeah and the way Crowley says it and the way Aziraphale responds with this soft really loving to the world Mm -hmm. having watched Aziraphale go through this journey of humanity is it's kind of almost secondary to his faith, to yeah. losing his faith, to really, really finding faith in the world and loving yeah. it so much to say it like that. Yeah. And then a nightingale sang in Berkeley Square <laughs> and it has the voiceover and then the song and it's Tori Amos doing it and it's yeah. such a beautiful version. I shazammed that. <laughs> I've got it. Um, it's on Spotify too, so I'm happy. Yeah. yeah. And it's just such a perfect place to end it. Mm. Which... Yeah, pretty much. Kind of almost. I suppose I should do an outro, really. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, right, fine. And Nightingale. (laughs) (laughs) In Barclay Square. No, I'm not doing that. Can you sing our Gmail address to that tune? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening. No. (laughs) (laughs) That's one of those game shoes, isn't it? Game shoes. That's one of the Radio 4 game shows. Yeah. The truth shall make ye fret. You can find us on Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, no, no. Um, Thank you so much to listening to the ineffable edition of The Truth Shall Make Ye Fret. I hope we are now more effable than we were before. I was never effable. Oh, darling, you're very effable. Darling! (laughs) (laughs) Um, We're going to take a week off now Mm -hmm. and we'll be back in March in the second week of March mm-hmm. with uh, our first episode on Mort Mort which we're very excited about book four mm-hmm. of the Discord books so stick with us for that in the meantime you can find us on Facebook or Instagram at the tree shall make you fret you can find us on Twitter at make ye fret pod email us your thoughts queries criticisms castles and snacks and albatrosses uh, the truth shall make ye fret pod at gmail.com please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts because it helps other people find us And until next time, dear listener. To the world. To the world. You're a good friend to have, Jo. You make me feel happier when I see you. I like you too. Hooray. This is good. Look at us being grown-ups about having nice emotions. Oh God, that's horrible. I know, it's alright because we can't physically touch each other. Oh, yeah, no. And so there's no risk of that having to happen. Yeah, no, if we, like, hugged or something right now, I'd, I'd want to die. Yeah, no, no that'd events. be very upsetting. Yeah. Cool. Right. Maybe we could go shout at each other on a bandstand after this to even things out. <laughs> that is uh, third base in a queer relationship. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>